If you just said this, right? I have to check out Harry Lang, another 100 year candidate. I'd, I, I, <laughs> you said that. What I'm saying is, I'd have to take out. Okay, I'll take out Conor Whelan then. Conor Whelan, I, that's it. I quit. Subscribe to the GA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, it's bang on half past seven. It is Wednesday, the 1st of June. Very quickly, straight off the top, Owen, thank you for being nice to me yesterday. Uh, thanks for not pointing out the most egregious error that I've made really in the five years that we've been doing this this Halloween. What's that? I was um, doing the sale for the road show and I was like, oh, it's Thursday, Thursday this week, Thursday week. Like It's, it's like, it's you know, it's, it's a while away. It's not. It's tomorrow. The roadshow is tomorrow. I lost a week. I lost a week of my life somehow. That's an important part of my brain somewhere in a field in Paris. And uh, there you go. No. So thank you for being nice and not pointing that, that out. In Paris? I have some fine wines and fine foods. Nice. That's what happens when you get to your 40s. That's, you, get, you get the same buzz. Since the, the dad cast has concluded, yourself and Adrian should start a, a fine wine. Wine and cheese. Cheese podcast. Not sure it sits that well with our training for the triathlon, but maybe it sits perfectly well. What, you what, do one to uh, enable the other. What's going to be your indulgent cheat meal after you complete triathlon? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I'd love to say it was it would be a cheat meal because then you know that would suggest It'll a be lot, out of kilter with with what I've been doing. Uh, you know, this week I was like, oh, I definitely won't be having anything. And then I brought a Toblerone back for my wife. For I was like, just having a little bit, a little bit of it, just a little bit of it. You need to keep the blood sugar levels I mean, ordinarily, up. I probably would have eaten the whole thing if I wasn't training for triathlon by now. I'm going, oh, sorry, I'll get you another one. But uh, These things are it. all about inspiring better behaviour. And that's exactly what it's done. It's a little bit, a little bit of better behaviour. Uh, right, so it's, uh, sorry, we're a minute into this and Colm is here, sitting patiently. There must be some big breaking tennis news. Some, something has happened overnight, Colm. Did you guys stay up to watch Rafael Nadal versus Novak Djokovic? And I hope you did because... This could be the last time they ever play each other at a Grand Slam. That's what we And I feel like told. it will be. Huh? That's what we keep being told. Every game between these... Yeah, I know. The that's one. the beauty of it because it's so tantalisingly close to the end at all times. As Jim Morrison uh, once sang about, the future is uncertain and the end is always near. Except for these two who go on forever. But this actually really, this time, could be the end. It's quite cold between the two of them actually as it ended after four and a quarter hours at half past twelve uh, midnight... Irish time, half one in the morning in France. Uh, but what a match. Did not think that last year's uh, epic semi-final would be repeated. And again, it only went to four sets. Didn't go to a fifth, but it's one of the all-time classic matches. And there are so many highlights from this match. Like the first game took 10 minutes. And by then I was calculating this is going to finish at 1am. And the sixth game of the second set was 18 minutes in duration, which is the longest ever game for a Grand Slam match at that, uh, at that level. Nice. Yeah. Um, what your speech was what happened um, Nadal played Djokovic at the French Open and he won <laughs> <laughs> um, like you were sitting here yesterday uh, were, you, were you sure that this was going to happen that it was going to be an all time classic like obviously no, you have yeah. two titans going head to head but the fact that it goes into the annals straight away as one of the greatest ever according to you anyway that's interesting because um, I wasn't sure if that was actually going to be the case No it's a good question I, I suppose I didn't really know I did think I, I was, I've been saying throughout the whole build up and uh, as recently as during the match last night that I did think Djokovic was going to win and I didn't I just couldn't see him losing more to the point not so much to do with Nadal and then um Nadal just wiped the floor with Djokovic in the first set. Djokovic wasn't even playing that badly, to be honest. Uh, but 
the one thing that was saying that was his first serve you only get 47% of first serves in but Nadal was just playing like out of this world tennis especially his forehand like Nadal forehand at the French Open is like a thing of beauty pretty much untouched and it looked like at that stage um, with Nadal winning 6-2 and he went 3-love up in the second set double breaks straight away he won 9 of the first 11 games it looked like it was going to be a repeat of the 2020 final whitewash and then out of nowhere Djokovic just came back and broke at a very crucial time to go 1-3 in the, in the second set and then that came up in 18 minutes in duration where they just exchanged deuces and advantages. I was actually talking to Joe Malloy, he was watching it last night and he, he was catching up on it and he was asking, you know, are, are these epic rallies that go on forever? It actually wasn't. The, the rallies were quite short and sharp. The things were the games were just really long and they were exchanging point for point. It's very rare that a player won two points in a row at one stage. Um, and it was just such a brilliant sporting spectacle to see for a brief moment in probably the midway through the second set and into the third set, both players were playing excellently well at the same time. And I thought that when Djokovic took the second, um, you know, coming back from three love down to actually win that 6-4 in the second, I was saying to everyone who was up watching it, like, you know, I just can't see Djokovic losing from here. But then Nadal's uh, response, you know, to break straight away to love in the first game of the third set, that's remarkable. And then to win that set quite handily. But then in the fourth set, Djokovic immediately breaks to go two love up. And you're like, ah, oh, we're, we're here for the night. Like Djokovic is five to up in the fourth set. And I, I had accepted my fate at that stage that it was going to go all the way. And that like, I would just have to go, go and actually come straight to work like from watching the match because it's going to go on forever. And Nadal brought it all the way back to a tie break. Was 6-1 up in the tie break, had a number of match points, but missed the first three. Ooh. And at one stage, I was like, oh my God, Djokovic is going to win this tie break and then win the match. That would have been I, all-time classic territory if he'd, if he'd managed to get back, like having... That would have, no, that would have been like its own Netflix documentary, I think, if Nadal had come back from there. But for the tie break, I found myself not being able to sit down. I just stood up for the whole thing. Partly because I was so caught up in the whole event and also because I was just imploring Nadal to win so I could go to bed. Because I and, was and calculating, just, it was going to take another hour. The second set took 88 minutes. That's too much. Uh, well, once I saw that, I was like, no, I'm out. That's too much. I was and out at that stage. The problem here is the night schedule. I was going to say something else there. This night schedule is it's so ridiculous Like to start at that time. Well, in it, Paris. I mean, unless they have an absolutely monumental American audience when that was, we don't know about. When I was watching, they were talking about um, last year when the president had to ring in and say, no, it's OK, you can go on a bit later. Remember there was like a... Yeah, that thing? was... Uh, was COVID-related. That was the was same. Yeah, that was yeah. yeah, that was when they had partial crowding. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing was that the Metro doesn't run all night. Exactly, yeah. So, But everyone stayed. But Roland Garros is pretty handy to get to. Very few, very few uh, fans left. The fans were quite raucous. Djokovic wasn't happy with them. Obviously, extremely pro-Nadal but they were, uh, they were shouting between points a lot and serves were being delayed. Another interesting thing about the serves is, you know, they have the shot clock. So if they don't serve before it gets to zero, they, in theory, get penalised. When Nadal was uh, taking advantage of that quite loose rule all night long and he was frequently getting to zero and the umpire only actually penalised them once. Um, but it was ridiculous. What's and what Nadal kept doing was he kept on looking at the clock just as he was bouncing the ball. And Djokovic is known to take an eternity to serve. But Nadal was taking longer than Djokovic last night. And I'm certain that this was a tactic. Oh, yeah. Certain. Because he never does this where he looks at the clock and looks down again. Fight but fire with fire. He took advantage of, uh, 
of his godlike status at the French Open because I probably wouldn't dream of penalising well, that. Uh, so you said he got penalised once. What, what, is the penalty just a, here, listen, don't be doing that again? Second serve. Second Sorry. serve, okay. yeah. But John McEnroe was going nuts on co-commentary saying, you know, like, you've got to penalise these guys a point. You've got to take a game off them because they're just going to keep on doing this. It's like a footballer giving dissent to the referee, like, if they're not going to respond to it. Footballers want to keep on doing it. The the same with these tennis players. It, it, it seems like it's a target now as opposed to, uh, this is your limit. It's like... It's, it depends on what the makeup is. So Nadal obviously sees Djokovic. I know he is, by a year, a full year, the fresher man anyway. But uh, yeah. on clay, would he, have, would he have necessarily always been that way? The, would Nadal not have always thought to himself, listen, I've got the, the, the body here to sustain this regardless and well, no, he would have gone quicker rather than slower? Again, I just think because of age, like yeah, he's going to turn 36 in two days' time. I, and I think with, with Nadal is he was just so stung by that Djokovic defeat last year. Um, and I mean, he's never lost, lost here two years in a row. 2015 and 16, he went out. 2015, he lost to Djokovic in the quarterfinal. But in 2016, he pulled out before his third round with injury. And the only other time he's lost besides last year was way back in 2009 to Robin Soderling in the last 16, who then got to the final and lost to Roger Federer, which was Federer's only French Open. Every, literally every other year since Nadal first played the French Open in 2005, he's won it. So... Nadal has nothing to be afraid of but the, the issue there was he came into the tournament with this really bad ankle which is to be honest has paid them for a long time but we talked about it a few weeks ago at the Italian Open the warm-up event he lost to Denis Shapovalov he couldn't move he really couldn't move and I was worried about how long he, how deep he could actually go into this French Open and when the draw was made the, the standard obviously was that these two were going to play to another quarter-final all going well but it was very much an all going well for Nadal bear in mind as well Felix auger seemed to come into five in the last round so I really thought like Jackson was going to win this, yeah, and Nadal was going as slow as possible just to get up some time. He was out socialising with the uh, Real Madrid players, or certainly he was at the game. Anyway. At the Maybe game, was yourself, yeah. socialising. But um, yeah, we were all hanging out. Me, Roger. Oh, sorry, Rafa. Uh, LeBron. Oh, was LeBron there as well? That, Liverpool owner, that card owner, Mexican um, barbecue chef. Two two million Instagram followers. The Mexican. He's like, yeah, check him out. He's a. Uh, Pepsi, he was overdoing stuff for Pepsi. He was like, this is a, this is a mad combination of people. And Jerry Roy. Well, well, that was not part of it. But, but, uh, but come here. This tennis documentary, Tribe to Survive, What a Racket, has a great episode there last night. And I think what's well, really interesting is the needle between them. Very quickly, the other, the, like, Alcaraz was beaten. So that was that yesterday afternoon. Yeah, that was yesterday. We can take all the time you want here, sir. We can't. Yeah, where's your wonderkin no, now? I, I don't, we, don't, we can keep Nathan, it's fine. Um, yeah, Alcaraz, uh, Alcaraz lost to uh, Alexander Zverev in four sets. Yeah, and that was a surprise. That was a real surprise. But he looked every bit his nineteen in the first two sets. Zverev was much better than him. Alcaraz took the third, uh, and Zverev just stuck the fourth. But like with Alcaraz, what we were saying here, it's best player in the world in current form, and he was at the time. But the, the thing we did caveat with was that that's best of three, and best of five was a different story. He lost best of three against Zverev anyway. So he lost the first two sets and. Um so yeah, it's but he has a very very bright future, and he himself wasn't too down about it afterwards. But you you, look, you just compare him to Nadal, and Nadal was winning the French Open at nineteen, and that's yeah. the only problem. But like, yeah, he is remarkable. I wouldn't look too much into it. I actually would be interested now with Zverev and Nadal in the semi final. Thing with Zverev is he has an appalling record against top ten players at the Grand Slam at Grand Slams. That was his first ever top ten win yesterday yeah. against Alcaraz. He's, He's an appalling record. Speed a kid. Appalling record. So you would think Nadal there, but just because of the fatigue. But one thing I do want to emphasise is the needle between the pair of them last night, between Djokovic and Nadal, because there's been not a quite a bromance, but a, like a massive amount of mutual respect between Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. 
But I think Nadal views him slightly differently because of the vaccination Hopefully. issue with the Australian Open. And the uh, handshake at the end was very curt. And that's unlike the two of them. And Djokovic walked off court. Now, I think Djokovic is a bit furious with how he performed. And afterwards was uh, very praiseworthy of Nadal. But I just thought that was an interesting... And Nadal did legitimately say this is probably his last time. Because it, uh, I think it is. And I, and I think that's why like we that should uh, linger here, Ger, Because it's... We might not talk about this ever again. And I, I think will. you're taking this for granted. You're just moving on I'm, to the next I'm segment. I'm not. They should make like a documentary so that we can talk about it again or something. Exactly. That's the thing. We'll get to talk about it again. When I you, really... When you do your six-part review of the four-part series. But you're, you're just treating this like any old segment. Like, you're just moving on. Like, this could be it. You're not... You're, this is like... This is this is Jura's don't look up moment. Where it's like... This this actually could be... This could be it. And Jura's like, no, no, no. They're going to keep going forever. I think you think that, or maybe don't care, but I think that we need to like bookmark this. This is the end of the greatest year it's that we'll ever though, see. It's tennis. not though, because he's playing, he's playing in two days against Zverev. No, no, the rivalry. Nadal and Djokovic may okay, never play each okay. other at the well, grandstand I mean, again. There is, there is the US Open, where I suspect they will see them to meet relatively early just in case, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's like we're only halfway through the, the Grand Slam season, but... I mean, Nadal has said that his injuries... There's no guarantee. Yeah, I worry for Nadal, I really do. He's hinting that he might... The pain he has to get through. Okay. He said recently that pain takes away happiness in life. You can move out there. It's okay. yeah. But winning also gives back happiness. I mean, they, they, other, other things <laughs> oh. can also take away well, what's pain. what's it worth, really? Other things when can also take away pain. you go home to bed and no one else is around and it's just you and the pain for should, company. He should read it. Andrew, that should, is sore. He should literally take a leaf out of Andre Akazi's book and just sleep on the floor. And um, that's that's all your problem solved. That's what I took away from that. I'd say Agassi's pretty happy. It's 7.44 this morning here on OTVM. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock. Nathan Murphy standing by. Tommy Walsh at 10 past 8. The uh, provincial hurling finals are upon us. We expect good games in both of them. Sizable crowds. Uh, sports pages at 8.35 with Colin Milani. Sports news from there. Uh, Shane Roach is going to join us at 8.50 to talk about Wexford season and their take on the Leinster Football Championship. Derek McNamara is going to give us uh, access to some high-end analysis of what happened in the rugby at the weekend to explain it. And then uh, Chrissy McCaig has been in conversation with our own own Sheehan. Kelly Harrington will play her interview from last night as well. Nathan, 7.44, good morning to you. How are you? I'll tell you, it's hard to compete with that gigantic Colin Buhig ego. You know, I psyched myself up bed early on a Tuesday night, on with the lads at half past seven, get the word this morning. No, no, Buhig's taking the first 15 minutes of the show for a... Tennis loving, and it's, it's fine. Uh, it's interesting you brought up, Jared, the uh, water racket, the potential of a drive to survive for tennis. Uh, that's happening for golf. And what a time and what a season for them to do it. So it's going to be out next year. Uh, already last week on the Netflix version, uh, the golf side of it, at the USPGA, the three players that are following three players specifically every week, they followed Mito Pereira, Will Zalatoris, and Justin Thomas who were the top three at the USPGA, which just so happened to be the three that they focused on. Mito Pereira, who obviously absolutely bottled it on 18. Uh, so last week was interesting, and this week is going to be pretty interesting as well, I think. You want the other end of the leaderboard, though? No, you want the guy who is in the lead on 18 at the USPGA and puts it in the water. Yeah. Justin Thomas, I mean, will be... Uh... Is there anything more that we can learn about Justin Thomas? Is there, is there like a is there going to be like a, a complete uh, different persona behind the scenes? I wonder after he Possibly. after he wins after he takes advantage of that. Like I, uh, I, th- I actually think there's every chance the golf thing could be could be excellent. But 
is I mean that's going to just reach a point where all these documentaries become unbelievably self-aware and everybody's trying to just do a Formula 1 job on it and we get a fairly cheap uh, product in the end Shark has been jumped right like I mean golf well, the, we, yeah. golf we, we've already reached the point I think even with Drive to Survive where expectations are so high that it can't possibly meet them mm. like it's just like the, I guess one of the great things about Drive to Survive was the the personalities born out of a lack of self-awareness golf and tennis quite possibly have those personalities in abundance and yeah, that's what you want okay their giant egos might get in the way of them being self-aware, self-aware exactly and uh, that's the best we can hope for I want the uh, eight second in room video of Dustin Johnson when he's making the decision to take the Saudi cash. <laughs> Be great television. Do you want a lot of money, Dustin Johnson? Yes. <laughs> Just explain what's going on there, Nathan. So uh, last night, pretty seismic news. Uh, we have been talking about Live Golf, uh, this new Saudi Arabian back tour headed up controversially by Greg Norman. And the first event is coming in uh, next week in England and they've been delaying and delaying and delaying in terms of naming the field has been obviously huge speculation but last night they finally came with names and Dustin Johnson is chief amongst them by far and away the biggest name uh, he is committed he is seems more or less said goodbye to the PGA Tour there have been a lot of rumours last weekend so P- DJ was one of the first names that would have been speculated about he never seems to have any great affinity with anybody or anything and is very much his own man does his own thing doesn't overthink it but when Phil Mickelson uh, was outed with his scary line about uh, the Saudi Arabians himself and Bryson DeChambeau quickly issued a statement saying they they love the PGA Tour and be staying uh, but his name is on the list he's going to London he is taking the cash his agent issued a statement saying Dustin has been contemplating the opportunity off and on for the past couple of years. Ultimately, he decided it was his and his family's best interest to pursue it. Dustin has never had any issue with the PGA Tour and is grateful for all it has given him. But in the end, felt this was too compelling to pass up, which sounds like Dustin Johnson is saying goodbye to the PGA Tour. Like This is huge for the game of golf that a player of his stature. Remember, we're talking about somebody that in the post-Tiger Woods era, nobody has been world number one for longer than Dustin Johnson. He's a two-time major winner. He has won consistently year after year in the PGA Tour for well over a dozen years at this stage. He's had a little bit of a dip recently, but he is one of the big guns and Liv Golf and Greg Norman have got him. Um, the field has been announced for this tournament. We've been waiting for basically a couple of years to see who would play. Uh, uh, Phil Mickelson's not playing. Well, there's 48 players going to be in the field. 42 have been announced, which leaves six places. Okay. Five of them are going to an Asian tour event, which is also backed by Live Golf this week, which will leave one remaining space. It could be you. So, Any golfer ranking 200, 300. So maybe, maybe last minute they decide uh, that Phil is going to play. But remember, this is just the first of eight events. And then they go to America. And we know that American golfers at the best of times don't like traveling. Uh, now that... DJ has stuck his head out there and is going to take a lot of the flack for this. Other players you would feel will look at it and think, well, maybe actually now it's done. Maybe I can go as well. It's going to be fascinating to see how the PGA Tour responds. They obviously banned their players from playing in this, which was a bit of a surprise in itself that generally they'll allow you one or two uh, across a year. But they decided this was such an existential threat to the PGA Tour that no players will be given a pass. So... We could well be heading for a, a pretty lengthy court case. He is the biggest name by a mile. There's other good players there. Taylor Gooch, the world number 35, who's been a good PGA Tour player the last couple of years is there. Kevin Na is in there. And then it's sort of a lot of the veterans, 
including Gray McDowell, who's yeah. going to go, Martin Keimer, Sergio we should, Garcia, We should talk about Gray McDowell. We can't be giving Gray McDowell a free pass for this. That's, so that's him gone now as a potential <laughs> Ryder Cup captain, right? Well, all of this is going to come out in the wash because he's not the only one who's now gone as a potential Ryder Cup. Like Ian Poulter, Mr. Ryder Cup, the postman. You know, it was nailed on to be Ryder Cup captain whenever he felt like it. Uh, is that gone? This right now is far greater threat to the European Tour initially than it is to the PGA Tour because a lot of the rest of the field is made up with you know semi-decent European Tour players. Like Oliver Becker has been one of the best players on the European Tour this season. Richard Bland has been the big success story for the European Tour over the last couple of years. They're committed to this. So how do European Tour responds by the time it comes around to McDowell being a captain, say potentially at a Dara Manor in 2027? Yeah, have they found a way through this? Have so many players gone that the European Tour have to accept it? Have the European Tour been subsumed by, by Saudi golf, by Live Golf? Who knows how it's going to play out? But right now, I would expect that the European Tour will have to come out and, you know, ban these players. Say that for the Ryder Cup, it's up. But listen, I think most of these players have looked at the money and just felt that they couldn't turn it down. I honestly don't think the human rights issue has been a major factor in their thinking at all it's they don't whether care. or not they, don't they want to go to war they don't with care. the PGA Tour sorry just, just that, to be clear they don't care about the human rights issues that's what these golfers are saying they don't care because bear in mind they're all already phenomenally wealthy and they're deciding that they don't care about human rights that their bank balance is more important than that and they're happy to get into bed with anybody the 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 Graham McDowell element of this is is interesting and he's done quite a U-turn Last October, GolfMagic.com, Gray McDowell describes Saudi-backed golf series as a major problem. January the 9th this year on Sports Illustrated, Gray McDowell, competition from the Saudis makes other tours better. So, I wonder what happened in the, the meantime. <laughs> a quick well, phone call. as I said, there was... You're so, this seemed to, to be here. stalling a little bit over the last few weeks with the delays. And then there was a lot of rumours around the PGA Tour last week that... They had come back and were doubling their money in the offers to the biggest guns, to the likes of Dustin Johnson, to get them on board. I don't think Gray McDowell is getting insane money to start with. He's not that big a name still, but he's looking at this and they're playing in London on what is you know a pretty average field with the exception of Dustin Johnson. Four million first prize. Everybody who plays uh, is going to get at least 120k. It builds up to the final end of season event which there's a team element to this as well which is going to become clear over the next little while but the final event which is obviously going to take place at one of Trump's golf courses uh, a 50 million quid prize fund so 16 million for first place for the first place team so 4 million per player uh, it's kind of insane the sort of money they're going to play for but I think you're right I don't think you know, I don't think they care about this human rights issue at all. I, I really don't think for the vast majority of players it was a factor in their delay to committing. It was, if this goes legal, where do we stand in terms of the majors? So Dustin Johnson's a defending, is, is a former US Open champion. The US Open is on in just a couple of weeks' time. Is there going to be implications there? It's an Open. It's hard to see it, but he's a former Masters winner. Sergio's a former Masters winner. Charles Schwartzel's a former Masters winner. Do they side with the PGA Tour and not allow these players back? And they miss out on the Champions Dinner and, and all that history. What happens with world ranking points? So if there's world ranking points again, this becomes far more attractive. If there's not, and suddenly you're dropping out of world's top 50 by committing to this, you miss out on another easy cash opportunities. So I think this is the real start of where it gets very interesting into the future of world golf. Okay. Uh, but the end result will be 
all of these guys will make an awful lot of money. Very, very quickly, uh, Joel Beale on Twitter, who is a staff writer for, going to get it right, uh, senior writer for Golf Digest, says, listen, if all this leads to a lawsuit, that means Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson will have to be under oath. Holy cow, sign me the hell up for that. That would be very interesting just so. So, Mr. Johnson, what is your relationship with the PGA Tour? How has that relationship been? Have they always been uh, fully public about all of your relationships with the PGA Tour? And Phil... Um, the book suggests that you lost a lot of money gambling. Is that the reason why you are uh, involved in the PJ and the Saudi thing? So those questions will be asked under oath. We'll get an answer to them. They wouldn't be the only people nervous about that, obviously. PGA. The tour might be. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. And then um, Golf Digest already reporting this morning that it appears as if um, RBC, one of Dustin Johnson's sponsors, have backed away. Uh, extremely disappointed in his decision and we wish him well. I don't know what RBC do. On the Royal Bank of Canada. Right. So the, or, the they are one of the big sponsors of the PGA Tour. They are the main. The Canadian opens on next week, yeah. And they've been advertising that Dustin Johnson was going to play uh, anymore for the last few months. Uh, they also sponsored the tournament at Hilton Head. So they're one of the big backers of it's, the PGA Tour and of individual players. Is that because of the Gretzky connection? Is that the Canadian um, element to Dustin Johnson? There, I hadn't thought of that. Too. He's married he to Gretzky's something. daughter. That's what you're talking about, Paulina. Yes, yeah. Right. Uh, so. The, uh, DJ coming to a dare manor in just a couple of weeks' time. Oh, great! We'll get to ask him all the hard questions, or else we'll all be banned from asking any questions. We'll see, see how that goes. Seven fifty-five this morning. Um, just very quickly, I uh, just want to read you the comments that our producer is putting through here. Uh, our producer is Colin Bowie. Uh, Shane C says, "Columns of t- of tennis is admirable. He's ahead of the curve. When the Netflix doc comes out, we'll all be on it." Uh, Brian Dillon says resident tennis brat Colin Buig staying up that late fair play I wish I was allowed to stay up that late and Chris Kyle says now his wonder boy Alvarez has lost will Colin change his hairstyle <laughs> I, I, before before you uh, lunged into the golf story there I was going to point out that Colin has his own theme tune as well He's, he's got his own walk-on music that he's he's developing for the show. Did you know this? Well, I we're trying to work on a format where we we're getting like WWE style behind the scenes foot, steady cam footage of people as they walk on. We're hoping to like uh, fine tune it so that we can do virtual insanity properly, so that we get you know tracking camera John Duggan walking from his desk to the studio. But of course, the end product of it all would be Colin Bowie walking in for his tennis slots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, uh, all the rest of the stuff is just like so that we can do the tennis stuff yeah. and, and anything else that like it's like, oh, you all need theme tunes because but we don't have any it's like, oh, I've got one. <laughs> what, will Colin's, <laughs> what, was, what will Colin's theme tune be? Uh, it's, it's, it's one of his mates singing. Nice. Gar- Gary Carroll. Yeah. Oh, is, were you getting the endless WhatsApp messages as well? <laughs> See, look, here's the thing, Nathan. You can you can pretend that you're somehow not involved in this, but you created the template for the self-aggrandizing. That's that's like he's just following your lead. Um, wow. There you go. What do you want to talk to us about? Your, your, the pain of the end of the season that uh, Liverpool fans are feeling at the moment? Have you recovered? This um, is the bit where he goes from like super reporter to super nasty. Watch. what that's that little angry head getting on there quick. Well, go for it. What do you want me to say? It was a disappointing end of the season for Liverpool. Is it a good season? I think it was a very good season, but didn't obviously reach greatness because of what happened in the last couple of matches, or the last few games, and not being able to win the league, not being able to win the Champions League, but they played, what, 64 games, lost four matches, going up against a side in Manchester City that are verging on being impossible to topple, uh, that are setting unprecedented highs in terms of points uh, but I think along the way you know they play a brilliant style of football 
Uh, they're always good to watch and just came up short in a couple of massive matches, which uh, I'm sure is going to sting for Klopp and for the players. But I think it was a very good season. They won a lot of big matches. You know, they scored, what, nine goals against Manchester United over the two games, which I can't imagine has happened ever before. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens now over the summer. When you were watching the Champions League final, what was your unfolding sense? What? Why were they just a little bit off from where they have been? Because bear in mind, they've played really well against good teams. In, in certainly in, in very big games and they've scored goals but for whatever reason in the cup finals this year they didn't score um, and I, I don't know if you can actually put a pattern from the three games because they're three different teams really but certainly in the, in the Madrid game their best players didn't fizz the way they have in the biggest games this season No but they're obviously a, a better team than Madrid in terms of creating opportunities. But like the Salah one with where he has this outstanding control, the finish is almost a replica of the what well, ends up in the goal of the season against Manchester City with his right foot trying to go across the keeper. Like is it that fizz? Is it that bit of fatigue that means against Ederson he manages to put it right in the top corner, just slightly away from his shoulder, whereas with Courtois it sort of just clips him. Like is that is that a bit of fatigue that he doesn't hit it as hard? Or is that just a bit of luck? It's very hard to tell. And if that goes in, we're talking about one of the great Champions League final goals. And we're talking probably about a very different conversation in terms of Liverpool's season. But I think it did feel as though they ran out of steam in a lot of games towards the end of the season. Like the Tottenham game, which ultimately was the one, if, if one thing doesn't necessarily lead to another, and maybe City don't drop points, if Liverpool don't drop points and all of that. But the end of the Champions League final was similar to the end of that Tottenham game at Anfield, where a lot of crosses into the box, nobody really in there, not winning any headers, not trying something different. And yeah, it did feel as though they like they might have been at 95%, but with the speed they generally play at, that that's not good enough. And I think the fullbacks are so important that if it slows down at all, like the brilliance of the fullbacks is how quickly they can get the ball into the area a lot of the time. That if that's coming in a lot slower, like good defences get back quicker. They're very well set up. The ball started to look aimless. Uh, and I think that was something that really stood out, particularly in the cup finals towards the end of the games. But I, I, you wouldn't look at any of the cup finals and say they didn't play well. Particularly, Carabao Cup final wasn't a great game, but the FA Cup final, uh, you know, they were again created an enormous amount of chances. Even the last night, like they hit the post again. Courtois ends up being man of the match, so there wasn't a huge amount wrong. But when you're trying to win a Champions League, you know, you got to take, you got to score a couple of those. Even Mane's chance that Courtois saved. The more you look at it, probably could have put it in the corner a little bit more. And maybe Salah with that one could have put it in the corner a little bit more. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, the Salah thing is, um, I don't know if Courtois was really man of the match, to be honest. Like, the, the Salah one was kind of right at him. And, and people are going to, yeah, I, I understand the whole of Europe has coronated him. It was an excellent performance and he didn't concede the goal. And so, yeah, okay, I get it. But I do I do wonder if, like, um, it didn't. It didn't feel like you know. It took a remarkable act of skill to create that chance, uh, as opposed to it being the pattern of play, creating several chances for Liverpool. Um, it just. It didn't feel like while they were dominant, they were comfortable. They, they they never. They never looked like winning the game. That was the problem. Yeah, but if they get the first goal, they probably suddenly do. Like if they score in the first forty minutes when they are well on top. But again, it's all ifs. And yeah, I, I, I certainly felt that Madrid always, and how could they not, had the ability to get them on the counter-attack and to create opportunities themselves. But Madrid didn't create an awful lot of, of chances and Trent is one moment where he switches off and it ends up costing them the game. So I, I, you know, I, I think you can pick holes in the performance, but there wasn't a huge amount 
wrong with it. Um, I, I do think, and obviously Mane going, and if they don't get a big fee for him, it's probably not ideal. But I do think while Diaz has been exceptional since he's come in, that move having to move Mane into the middle takes a lot away from Mane. He's, he's not anywhere near, say, Firmino at his best in that sort of holding role as a number nine, dropping a bit deeper. Everything with Mane can be a little bit clumsy, and that's what makes him brilliant in a way that, you know, a bit of trickery, the ball's bobbling here and there, and he reacts quickest. Whereas, actually, I think in that more central role, you want a bit more control in it. So I think if Mane goes, and presumably he does go, that the player they'll be looking to bring in is probably more likely to be a central striker. Yeah. Because Diaz is already there. Like, Diaz is Mane's replacement. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the Republic of Ireland. It's um, an unbelievably busy and important 10 days for them. The team hopefully are on flights this morning to Yerevan. Uh, I don't know. Is there some way of getting them away from the chaos? Is there like a, well, we'll stick on a, a, ple- a special treatment. You would hope that maybe they can avoid the seven RQs. I don't know. Maybe they can. Maybe they can't. Maybe they, maybe we're asking for too much. But I thought you were talking about the unrest in Yerevan as opposed to Dublin Airport there for a sec. Such was such as the as, as man of our world. Um, so what 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 constitutes success from these next ten days from the Republic of Ireland's perspective? Bear in mind that Stephen Kenny ratcheted up the pressure on himself and the team by saying we want to go on top of the group. Yeah, and I think uh, topping the group is a realistic goal. It's not an easy group. uh, But the way the fixtures work out could work out quite well for Ireland. Like, it's four games in 10 days. Stephen Kenny was saying yesterday that, you know, it's not ideal, but actually you don't mind when everybody has the same calendar. So you're not going in where one team has had four days and you've only had three days. Uh, Like, I've gone through it a million times. The rewards for topping a group in the Nations League are absolutely massive and could transform... Stephen Kenny's time in charge, not just for this campaign, but for the next campaign as well. And could be the biggest boost for him getting another contract after this. Uh, so Ukraine are playing Scotland tonight. And in terms of how Stephen Kenny plans out the next four matches, he was saying that, you know, he's going to go in against Armenia. You can't really think about, well, I'm going to rest players against Armenia, start them against Ukraine next Wednesday. And then I'm going to rest somebody for this, that you sort of start with your first team and take it from there. So I think he'd probably go out with his strongest possible eleven. And then a lot will depend maybe on what happens tonight. Because if Ukraine beats Scotland, Ukraine are then playing on Sunday against Wales in the playoff final, which means they would be coming to Dublin, you would imagine, resting pretty much all their players because they've just played two huge matches. Where if they don't, suddenly they've got a break and they're coming in fresh and you're thinking that's the toughest game. Like Remember, Ukraine got to the quarterfinals of the Euros last year. Uh, they've been up in Division One of the Nations League. They've got a lot of quality players there. So I, I think it's a it's a tough group, but if they can get off to a good start, win in Armenia, you would expect to beat Armenia at home. Like Armenia, it could be a good time to get them while they obviously were promoted from uh, Division Three. Like they've collapsed defensively in recent. Like they conceded nine in their last match against Norway, conceded eighteen in their last four games. So defensively, they've been a little bit of a shambles. So I think there's an opportunity to finally get a win. Remember, our record in the Nations League is a disgrace. We have never won a game. We've never won a game. Only San Marino have scored fewer goals than Ireland in the Nations League. So while this should have been a competition that benefited Ireland, uh, it's been anything but so far. But it feels like a very typical uh, international build-up in that nobody's quite sure what's coming. But by, what is it, 2 o'clock kickoff on uh, Saturday? By 4 o'clock on Saturday, we'll either be, you know, serious questions about Stephen Kenny's future again, or we'll be all looking forward to uh, qualifying for the World Cup. I think the most astonishing statistic from Ireland's time in the Nations League is that 
they have suffered zero relegations. Like how that has actually happened is uh, is kind of beyond comprehension. Like I, so, just that last bit you said there that if it's a poor start to the campaign for Ireland, that there will be a sort of referendum on Stephen Kenny uh, again, and certainly in public discourse, is is that really how you think it is? That we're, we're still very much uh, at a. I, 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 I think in terms of the FAI, we're past that. But yeah. that's every Ireland manager, every single match. If you don't win a game the criticism will come. And while there's momentum there now and there's a good body of work that progress has been made in terms of style of football and results and scoring goals and been attractive to watch, uh, you know, again, people look at Armenia as an absolute minnow. If you don't beat Armenia, questions will be asked. But, you know, I don't think there's any... If Ireland don't do well over these four games, I still don't think there'll be any major questions about Stephen Kenny's future. No, no, no. There's a campaign to come uh, irrespective of what happens here. And I know the point you're making about the... If we were to do well in this, it kind of just guarantees everything will follow from that point and you get better games and you get better quality of opposition you get to test yourself and like it's a virtuous circle that's what's on offer um, give me the scoreline from the game in Castle Bar at the weekend oh that's a Mayo in a qualifier you're looking at either extra time or a last minute point maybe a 116 to 115 victory for Mayo this is the biggest. This is the biggest game in Mayo's season. If the game was in Clonus, I'd feel far more confident. <laughs> Why? You spent all that money on doing up the the, the the gaff, and now you're like you don't want anybody to come there. Yeah, it's yet to be proven though that you know that everybody likes the gaff. So Mayo's record at Casabar has never been great. Yes, they've obviously changed the pitch and done it up, and maybe it suits their style a little bit more. But there's there's a, there's a bit of magic in Mayo on the road uh, that uh, always seems to bring the best out of them. But I, is that because all your best people leave? Think, is that what you're saying? Well, some some leave, some leave, Jerry. A lot, a lot of great people have remained. You know, stop trying to get me in a lot of trouble here. What's the what's the undertone there? Ocean's power ranking suggests the Mayo win. That's the main thing. Have, have you heard anything? Any any nuggets of information coming out of the Mayo camp? Oh, no, nothing comes out of the Mayo camp these days. Really? Okay. Certainly nothing true. Anyway. Well, that's for sure. Uh, they, yeah, Horn obviously sat down last week with, um, I think, a lot of the local media and outlined that there's doubts about several players. But, you know, uh, if Pushing Mullen is fit, if Killian O'Connor has, you know, a couple more weeks of training under his belt, I think Mayo should have just enough. Right. Just enough. All right. Very uh, lacking in confidence, but um, hopefully there'll be some more confidence on show in Castle Bar tomorrow night. Anything good stuff? Thanks a million. The Royal Theatre, Castle Bar, tomorrow night in celebration of Mayo football, a look at the championship race and much more. It's the Football Pod Live with Paddy Andrews, James O'Donoghue and special guests. Check out otbsports.com forward slash events or you can get to Ticketmaster. You'll be able to get tickets on the door, I think, as well. Stay tuned to OTB for details of more shows to come. After the break, we're going to be joined by Kenny Hurling legend Tommy Walsh preview the weekend's provincial finals. During the ads, though, you're going to hear a clip from the latest episode of the Football Pod where Paddy James and Tommy talk about what's gone wrong for Donegal. The Football Pod is in partnership with AIB, Proud sponsors of the GA Senior Football Championship. Check out the hashtag the toughest for more. Back after these. OTB AM. Right, you're very welcome back. It is 13 minutes past eight this morning. I'm delighted to say Tommy Walter is with us to help preview the weekend's hurling. Tommy, is anybody talking about anything other than the handshake at the weekend? That is the first time I heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, listen, I think there's so much spoken about that handshake for two or three weeks after the, the initial game up in uh, Salt Hill. Um, not really. There's not much talk about that down here because I suppose we don't like controversy. We like keeping it simple and focused on the game. And um, I think myself, the two lads, like 
you heard Brian Cody's answer to Anthony Nash on Sky Sports. This isn't about Henry Shefton, this is about Galway. And my experience with him in the dressing room is that's exactly the way it will be this week. They'll be so motivated when we're getting beaten by a last minute pint. And on the other side, then, Henry Shefton, like, it's, you know, Cody's going for his 18th Leinster Championship. I suppose he was brought in in 1999. 18 of them, it's a remarkable record. Shefflin, you have to start somewhere. He's going for his first. He's not going up to Galway on them roads two and a half hours, three or four times a week, just to maybe win a game in Salt Hill here or win a league game there. He's going up to win serious championships, national championships. So Shefflin will be highly motivated. Um, he's up there for, you know, you'd imagine two, three years max with the, with the travelling. Like, it'd be impossible to say to go any longer. Barry buys a helicopter or his own airplane or something. <laughs> so he will be so motivated to win this one. Maybe if he wins in All-Ireland, the helicopter will be laid on for him. Uh, so the one thing I would, would you know, you, you're thinking about how this game is going to go and you would tend to look back on previous matches. But what also history has shown us is that these games take on a life of their own. And what happened in one game, between, particularly between Kilkenny and Galway, there's literally no guarantee that anything that we've seen or learned from that match is going to be applicable the next day. Is that, is that changed? Is there like at least something that we can take from the game in Salt Hill and go, we're likely to see something similar in this area in Croke Park at the weekend? Yeah, well, uh, the one thing I would say is there'll be no fear on either team. I think this is a great rivalry. Listen to the lads on Off the Ball there, uh, Paul, Paul Murphy and, and James Skettle and Will talking about during the week. Like, there is a huge rivalry since Scalvey came in as 9 The reason that it probably doesn't have the same or about as maybe the Munster Championship games is as, the, as they pointed out they're, they're not borderline counties so that intense rivalry won't be there say in normal day to day life you know when you're in the cream or you're in the shops or the pubs there's no border towns as such but another reason is the Crow Park factor like as James Skell rightly pointed out like 30,000 people in Crow Park is far different than 10,000 people down in Welsh Park for say, you know what, and to be the same, and if you're wine, it's not just a Munster Leinster thing. We played them up in, in 09 up in Tullamore. That was probably the first game. The place was packed to the Raptors. The atmosphere was electric. The crowd were, you know, every poke they were poking at with you, every mistake you made, they were in shouting from the, from the lines. You could hear that buzz around the place. Then go forward to 2014, there was the, the drawn match and the replay. Then, I'd say was was it Henry came on possibly or maybe he started and Joe Canning was on the other side. It was like you know the the the, the older say the he was like he was passing on the the light and um, I think Henry one of them scored one point and then the other equalised it. So we were seeing greatness and we had an atmosphere to to to, to go with it. So they do as you say take on a life of its own. But then like we were winning that match the first match by I'd say nine points with three or four minutes to go. And, uh, and it looked like we were home and host getting to a Leinster final and back came Galway but going forward to the, the, the last match in Open Pier Stadium again atmosphere is electric these home and away games so I think this weekend will be much different so the, the atmosphere won't be as electric as up in Crow Park 7 o'clock in the evening so there might be that many families that travel they'd be expecting probably a crowd of maybe 25,000 people so I think what, what we'll see different there as opposed to the, the earlier round robin games is there'll be huge space in Crow Park. When you play in a kind of an empty-ish uh, stadium, and especially in Crow Park, it's absolutely massive. So I think the real hurlers that love the space and the speed, 
they will love it up here Saturday night. So you might see, you know, the way they've been tight and tough and physical matches in the smaller pitches. I think this could be a very open game. You said that there isn't that local rivalry between Galway and some of the counties based in Leinster. Is that actually the the thing that sort of drives Brian Cody a little bit and sort of creates, not a tension, but, but a, a, a sort of an incentive for Kilkenny to go out and beat Galway at every opportunity? This idea that, you know, they're not a Leinster county and they're coming into our province and, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to, to break with the tradition of not being in the Leinster Championship. And, and, and is, that's something I wonder that, that, that sort of motivates Cody when it comes to games against Galway. Well, first and foremost, he's a hurling man and maybe in the initial stages, you know, you use that as a, I suppose, a tool in your toolbox, uh, Owen. But, like, what we've seen since 09 is Galway have added everything to the Leinster Championship because they've just added a competitiveness. Like, you're at nothing if there's one team. We see the Leinster football at the moment. Uh, Dublin winning every, you know, game be 10, 11, 12 points. That was the story for Kilhenny at one stage. But Galway coming into this... Uh, championship has really, you know, raised the standards again because Wexford have come up strong, uh, Dublin have come up strong. So I think it'd be an addition to it. But what will motivate Brian Cody is with Pierce Stadium. There's no doubt about it. You go back to 0 1 when uh, Galway beat Kilkenny in the Ireland semi final. Remember the clash before the game with uh, Richie Murray and a few of the Galway lads were physically, you know, putting it up to the Kenny lads. and we felt that day that, you know, we were out, phys- you know, they, they won the physical uh, matches that day against Kilkenny and it has never been like that since. So that still is in the back of Brian Cody's uh, mind, that 2001 All-Ireland semi-final. I think his teams have been based and their mindsets and their attitudes have been based on the failures uh, of that match in 2001. And we've rarely, I'd say, if ever seen, you know, that happen again. Usually now if Kilkenny are beaten, it's because we're a better team. They weren't outmatched uh, physically or they weren't outmatched mentally. So I think it's been more back to the 2001 uh, game on and uh, until a couple of weeks ago. That's that's interesting because I, w- I would have always thought that you know Cork w- was the big motivating factor and they, they probably were to be fair but but that 2001 matchup between those two teams also is, 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 is a little bit of fuel for the fire that, that helped your great team. Yeah, well I, t- I think as an overall mindset that changed uh, Brian Cody massively. He came back, you know, tougher. He, he he made decisions based on the team as opposed to rewarding individual players. So as an overall mindset, I think that 2001 game against Galway had a huge, huge, um, you know, it was a huge factor in the way the Kenny teams were prepared going forward, uh, both physically and mentally. And, um, yeah, I think you talked about the card game. That was all individually. So when you came up to an individual game, obviously there was huge rivalries within different counties. Uh, in terms then of this weekend, like what what changes or what what approach do either team take to try and take advantage, get your best players in the space that you're talking about, and make sure that they don't get crowded out if if that is going to happen and. Um, how like because it was such a ding dong at the end, you, you know. Like if that game had finished a draw, we would have been saying how flaky Galway were, having been pickpocketed the previous week as well and got in trouble at the very end. Happens two weeks in a row, begins to look like a pattern. They get away with it because there's a crazy free at the end, which I still don't know what the right answer to that one is. And it's like oh, catapulted straight into the the Leinster final. So um, I, I kind of go back to my original question. I don't know anything about what's going to happen this weekend on the basis of what happened the last weekend, apart from the fact that Kilkenny are going to be highly motivated. Yeah, well, they'll have to... If you go back to the Kilkenny game against Wexford, 
I think um, they're going to have to revert back to changing up their game plan. So against Wexford, when they were under pressure, like everybody talks about uh, Wexford, great victory in Nolan Park, but Kilkenny for the last 15, 20 minutes just lumped ball down on top of the full forward. Yeah, some days that works for you, other days it doesn't. But the main thing is in the modern game, there's so much video analysis going on, you have to change it up. So if you keep hitting long balls, well, your opposition know where the ball is going, so they can run into them positions. Whereas if you change it up, we'll say they're a simple one. If a half hour comes short, gets the ball, the next ball that Richie Reid gets, Paddy Deegan gets, Hugh Lawler gets, or anyone, Mikey Kieran, the half-back line, well, the half-back is going to have to mind the half-hour instead of, if they're used to the Kenny half-back line, just lumping ball down to the full forward line, well, they don't even have to look at the half-hour. They can just sprint back and cover inside. So I think the Kenny, like I was looking at the score lines as well up in Pierce Stadium, uh, Jer, like Owen Cody scored 1-2. Other than that, like there wasn't much scoring from play. John Donnelly and Billy Ryan scored goals. Towards you look at the Galway team up in Salt Hill. Joseph Cooney scored four points from play. Con Cannon scored four points from play. Johnny Cohn got a goal, and Tom Monaghan got three points. So straight away you can see Kenny were you know there's no individual stars really showing up. And what's going to change, Ger? I think at the moment Galway are the, are the farm team coming into this Leinster final. I think Kilkenny a very, very good team, very, very good players. But I think we're not hitting a consistent form. So for Kilkenny this weekend, it'll either peter out, like the, say, like the game against Wexford, or it could be the start of a long summer. Because I, I don't know if you agree with it. I know I listened to it over the years, momentum and... You know, but does it matter? Does that matter? I believe it does. I think I agree. What I, what I think is confidence matters, right? And a, a team gets confidence from winning. I, I, when we're talking about momentum, we're talking about in the middle of a match where one thing happens uh, and then the other team suddenly decides, OK, that's the end of the match. I think that like that's over. That's overblown in the middle of a game. But I do think players get confidence from something happening successfully and patterns of play emerge. And I think that if, if Kilkenny were to be the Leinster champions, not only is it an easier pathway for the rest of the season, but there is that kind of opportunity for them to, you know, training will be much better just in terms of the, the confidence that lads have. Somebody will have to play really well for them to beat this Galway team. It'll also be a massive turnaround from the Wexford game for them too. So, um, you know, that that's my argument on momentum. I think that, like, maybe yeah. we have different words for the same thing. Yeah. So I, I think that, well, if you can, you're probably, you're probably right, confidence. There's no player that you'd say, like, if you look at the Clare team, you look at Dave Fisher, look at Tony Kelly, look at Shane O'Donnell, Peter Duggan. They look like, to me, guy, from the outside, guys brimming with confidence. Like, guys that can't wait for the next match to come along, can't wait for the next training session. Could you say that about any Kenny players at the moment? There's not really, you know, Mikey Carey on the half-back line, you'd say, yeah, Mikey Butler, probably all defenders. So we need to, we need to kick any forwards, I thought, to start lighting fire, to see any sort, you know, to give confidence to the public. Uh, so, like, Adrian Mullen is a, is a case in point. I, I thought, uh, listen, to Paul Murphy from, you know, over the last month or so, there was harsh words being spoken about Adrian kind of needing to, this is his time now. He's still very young and he's coming back off the, the cruise ship and the comeback has been slow. But, you know, all of a sudden it's a Leinster final in Croke Park. If he was to score five or six points from midfield, you'd be like, well, that's what, he, that's what he's capable of doing. But that would be a transformative moment for Kilkenny as well if he was suddenly to find the form that we think he's capable of. Yeah, but he'd be dependent on the backs giving him the, the right ball. Like you look at Cottle Mania and Joseph Cooney, they're shooting the lights out over midfield, Tom Onahan for, for Galway. But Adrian has done it in different games. And if you notice, the games that he's been doing it is when they're bringing the ball out through the lines. Now, I'm not saying you have to do it every time, but 
to go back to the Wexford game, I don't think you could have been at that game playing much ball out through the lines because they were so congested in the middle third. Nolan Park was a small pitch, especially when the when the Nolan Park is full. So I don't think the opportunity was there probably to give to Adrian Mullen Shark towards it will be on Sunday. You know, and Alan Murphy has been playing midfield. So you have two hurlers, two ball players, as opposed to two workhorses uh, out there around midfield. The spaces will be there on, on Sunday, I think, in Crow Park. Will the Kilkenny backs give it to him? If they do, I think that's what Adrian Mullen, I think his form, he's probably one of the form players, I think, when he's given the ball, he is on form this year. He's shown huge maturity. He's shown, shown a guy that's gone from young hurl year into a, a senior type player. So I think he's depending on the Kenny backline, giving them the ball out around the middle. Okay, so it sounds like you think it's going to be a ding dong. Do you have a, a sense that it's going to go Kilkenny's way? You know, like you, you do, you certainly doesn't feel like you have the same lack of confidence in this Kilkenny team that some people have. No, I've great confidence in the team, but I don't think they're in form, and that's why I think Galway are going to win it on Saturday night. Um, I think we've a t- I, I think Kilkenny have pound for pound. Players, they're better players. If you look at the the, the one to fifteen versus the one fifteen for Galway, but I think Galway are just brimming at the moment. They're humming. They got their kind of bad game out of the way uh, early on, and now they're they're you know the one against Wexford where they should have won it. They were winning coming into the the home stretch, but they've been winning, winning, winning since. And I think they're a team playing a form, playing a confidence, and I think Galway will win on Saturday night. Okay, right. Let's talk a little bit about. Um Munster then and what the implications are of a Munster final victory for, for Clare no no less than if, if Kilkenny were to be able to turn around and beat Galway the benefit for that would be huge for them I think for Clare beating Limerick in a Munster final it's almost more important than it is for Limerick even though Limerick are chasing their own version of history Yeah and like if the, for Limerick if the, the McMahon Cup it's the first year of the McMahon Cup so they renamed the Munster Championship uh, winning trophy to Mick Mackey, the famed, one of the greatest players ever lived for, from, from Limerick. So it'll be huge motivation for Limerick to win that Mick Mackey Cup. But on the opposite side of that, won't Clare be highly motivated to deny Limerick the, the chance of winning for the first time? And um, I think Clare even, if you go back and listen to the interviews from the great Clare winning team of 95 and 97, Especially Shawnee McMahon, who people would have, I suppose, loved watching. He was the first probably centre-back that we remember. Long-range, free-taker scoring five, six points nearly most games. He was an inspiration. He was quite type of player, but tough as nails. Well, Shawnee McMahon, when he speaks about 1995, says the Munster Championship was nearly more important, or meant more to him at the time, than winning the All-Ireland. So you can tell by, you know, that, that interview, like they won it for the first time, was it, since the 30s. And he cherished winning the, the, the Munster Championship more than the All-Ireland. It was probably because, coming from Clare, you know, like, they were a very weak county before that team went on its run around 93, 94, 95. And um, so they probably, growing up in, in the 80s, Sean McMahon, them players, probably never dreamed of winning the Munster Championship. Now you fast-forward that, they won 95, they won 97. But the current team, some of them, won 2013. And we all thought they were winning 421s. Or three, they won four and thirty ones. I think they won three in a row. But we thought that clear team of the Shane O'Donnells and you know um, Pod Collins, um, you know all that team. We thought they were going to go on and win a couple of All Irelands. And have they even been to a Munster final yet? Maybe once, one since. So I think these guys will cherish a Munster championship massively. I say Brian Nolan, 
for coming from here he is coming from. We'll be looking at no All-Ireland, no All-Ireland semi-final. Let's win the McMackey Cup. So I think there'll be huge motivation from Clare, especially the rivals as well. We talk about Kenny and, and, and Galway, not Borderline. Like these are going to be massive local rivals. Are, are Clare well set up enough? Like Again, the, the last game between them, it, I think, doesn't really mean anything when it comes to this weekend, apart from the fact that Limerick were really close to them, even though they didn't have a full team or the full motivation of something up for grabs at the end of it now I don't know if you can turn that on because there's a trophy sitting there when you run out for it um, so I guess the, the question is where are Limerick at the moment how confident are we that they're back to the level that they were at when they were winning the All-Ireland last year yeah well I suppose the worrying team for Limerick is Kyle Hayes is probably not in the form that we thought he would be moving back up into the forwards. he had great the first day but he hasn't been shooting the lights out or been on a huge amount of ball and always been played inside quite a lot um, you have, you know, Keen Lynch is out, out injured. They're two of the, I suppose, my four pillars. There's the two of them, Gerald Hegarty and Tom Morrissey. Well, if two of them are kind of, one of them out of farm and one of them is actually out, you know, you know, it's it's definitely, I suppose, for Clare, like, it has to be a motivation that, lads, we can do this. We've done it in, in, in the Round Robins series. We can do this again. Where do I see it? I think this Limerick team is playing out lovely for them. Everyone is dictated by winning, by drawing. John Kiley, he dropped, he didn't drop, he rested. I'd say Aaron Glan might have had a niggle or two, rested Darrow Donovan. They still came out of a draw down in, in, in Ennis. They had to lost that game. You'd be saying, you know, you can't turn off an, on and off a, a light switch. So I think it's playing lovely, just like the league played for, for Limerick. So I think there'll be huge motivation down in Limerick. And I think we've, like the, I suppose, the Lencer final, but I'm going to switch it around this time. I think Clare are the farm team. I think if David Fitzgerald shooting the lights out, midfielder, you wouldn't normally see as a, a score. You have John Conlon, you have Tony Kelly, Podge Conlon's Peter Ruffin, like all these names are rolling off the tongue, really. So they are a farm team at the moment, Clare. But I think Limerick are just unbelievable. Like, Dearman Burns is hurling better than, I suppose, any halfback has hurled in so many years. He's scoring six points a game, would score nine points in a game. But his overall defending, his high feeling, his catching, his overall game is absolutely outstanding. So, I think that the physicality of this Limerick team will be so high on Sunday. I don't think uh, Clare will be able to compete with. It was interesting listening to, to John Kiley in the build-up to this game. He said that the last couple of years actually really suited this management team because there were big gaps between games with no backdoor and their planning, which we know is so meticulous and, and so in-depth, they allowed, it allowed them to do so much of that over the last couple of years. Whereas when we were back to a round-robin scenario this year, he says that they maybe didn't get enough of a look at a team week in, week out. So I guess that probably places a, a huge degree of importance on this game for Limerick, that they're a team that really need to come through the front door. They really thrive with these big swathes of weeks between games. And the week in, week out nature perhaps actually doesn't really suit this team. Yeah, well, looking back at our own experience, I think... Like when you have a great team like this Limerick team have, like generational players, players that will be talked about in many, many years to come, the whole thing about it is motivation and freshness. So it's going to work out better for them uh, on when there's three or four week breaks. It's very difficult to keep it going week after week after week. So I do agree with John that, but I think everybody's in the same boat at the moment. John Kiley has been lucky. He's been able to rest players. He has players come back from injury at the latter stages. 
no matter what goes on this Sunday, they're going to be still in the championship. He'll have Dean Lynch to come back. He'll have players come back into form. He'll be hopefully Kyle Hayes will come back into a bit of form. They might find his best position. But um, you know, Seamus Flanagan is back. So I think, listen, it's the same for everybody. Yes, it would suit them that be better with a couple of weeks break. But I, th- I still think they'll have enough to do with that this weekend. Like even if I was looking at a few of the matchups, like Tony Kelly, we're all talking about Tony Kelly and the greatness he has been on the field for the last couple of years. I, I have a feeling whoever he marks on Sunday on the half hour line, whether it's centre forward on Declan Hannon or on the wing on Dearma Burns or maybe Dan over the other side, I think they will have Willow Dunhill tracking him. And they know, Willow Dunhill is a giant of a man. Like he's going around, he's a menace out around the middle. He's in lads' faces, he's there for every breaking ball. Every time you see a, a forward on the opposition, so untrue. Willow Dunhill was always behind him at some somewhere. He's chasing him down. He's like an angry bear around the middle of the field. So I think, I think he would be tracking Tony, just there in his face the whole time, you know. Um, other matchups I was looking at, like Dermot Burns, Shane O'Donnell. I think that will be a great one uh, on Sunday. Dermot Burns farmed his life. Shane O'Donnell, the same. Kind of the big guy versus the little guy. So he'll be looking for the ball, low, short, go around Dermot Burns. Dermot Burns will be looking for it high and, and long and try and win that aerial battle. But I think there's some fascinating uh, battles uh, this weekend. That, that Will O'Donoghue shout is, is interesting because if you asked me who would win in a fight, Tony Kelly or an angry bear, you might actually say Tony Kelly would win, <laughs> such as the, 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 the talent of the man. So, like that, I, I'm not sure that, that, that kind of feels a bit, a bit out of um, left field, but obviously it's something that, that could easily happen this weekend. So, so who, do you, who do you see winning that battle? Do you see Tony Kelly having the, the smarts to be able to get around uh, a man marker with the physicality of O'Donoghue? Yeah, well, that'll be that'll be a two-on-one. I don't think Willow Dunhill will take him up one v one. So I think he'll be tracking him. So very difficult to do because when you you look at David Clifford in, in the football, when he's left alone, man on man, he wins that battle every time. When you put two or three men back covering the spaces, covering in front of him, much more difficult. But that's where the rest of the guys come into it. And that was the great, I suppose, confidence booster that Brian Owen will feel after the the last round is when he rested all these guys and they still they, they shot the lights out. So, you, had, you know, Dave Fitzgerald. So, if they do put Will O'Donnell, that'll leave a free man out around the middle. So, you'd be hoping for a clear then Dave Fitzgerald or someone, you know, Cotton Malone or someone will take it on, Peter Duggan out around there, and they will take the, the heat off Tony. So, I think if that happens, the heat goes back on the other clear forwards and can they, you know, help in, in, in the score. And they prove they can do it. One, one, one last thing before we get your shout out. Uh, the, the difficulty for and the reason why so much is invested in these games is still because it's very difficult to recover from the defeat and what a puncture it would be for all of the air in Clare's balloon if they were to lose this weekend are they well equipped enough to come through this and still reach an all Ireland final say are they, are, they, are they that good that actually you know they shouldn't be too devastated if they lose this game because there's still a big prize for them here well I think they'll be devastated if they lose it because, you know, they don't come around too too often. Like, we've seen Clare, like, they're in the form of their lives at the moment. Like, all their players, uh, from the goalie right through to number 15 and the subs coming on. Like, when you drop six players, Ger, and you still go on and beat Watford by what they've beaten by in the last round, like, that's a team in form. That's a panel in form. That's a management. Even the supporters, like, everybody is behind this team at the moment. I think now is the time for this Clare team. So, if they lose the Munster final they will be devastated. And can they pick themselves up? Sure, it'll just depend on when the next match is and who it's against. But um, I think they'll play the Joe McDonough 
you know, winners or losers the following week. So it'll be, you know, straight back on the horse and trying to win it. But I don't even think they'll be thinking about this. Um, going back, can they win in All-Ireland, Jerry? I think Limerick are on top of the, the tree at the moment. And I, re- I really honestly believe that everybody else is a 50-50 game. I don't think there's anyone a little bit above anyone uh, down, down, down the pecking order. So I think it's a very even championship. And like Tom Brady often said in American football, you have to be ready for when your opportunity arises. So people can't be worried about, geez, can we beat Limerick? Someone might, might beat Limerick, and then you have to be ready to go on and win it. Yeah. And the best case in point, Jerry, will be 2019. Nobody thought anyone would beat, beat Limerick. Kilkenny beat him in the semi-final. Well, if Tipperary hadn't been winning their games on the other side, they wouldn't be All-Ireland champions. And they went on and they, they'd be Kilkenny in the final, you know. Yeah, maybe if Richie Hogan hadn't been sent off, Kilkenny would have been the, the uh, champions too. We'll see. We'll never know, I suppose. Come here, who's your shout-out this week? Yeah, and just before I go on that one, just one big match, I think we'll have a big um, bearing on, on Sunday's win, is Aaron Galan versus uh, Rory Hayes. I think Rory is a slight guy. He's small. He's out in front. He's tough, tigerish. But Lan is massive. Uh, as we are, he's in the air. He's massive on the ground physically, and he's playing with huge confidence in mom. So I think that'll be a huge battle. And whoever wins that one could have a huge bearing on the game as well. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So the shoutouts this week. I went with the team of the the Munster and Inter final, obviously this week. So I went with three great finals of the past. I start with the Munster final of 1944. I wasn't at it, or <laughs> <laughs> I read about it. But um, why, you'd probably say, why would you pick out the 1944 one? Cork and Limerick were, were against each other in Torlis, but it was called the Great Bicycle Final. So the war was on at the time, and there was emergency travel restrictions. So most people that went to that game had to cycle to the final. Imagine if you ask people to cycle to it now, what happened? Everyone giving out for the game at 7 o'clock of a Saturday evening, the Leinster final. But they walked, they ran, just reading about it. They came on horse-drawn carriages. Some people came on train. But it was just supposed to be a magical occasion. And um, it finished then with, I think, Mick Mackey had a, a free to win it for, for Limerick. That tailed off wide. Who had stepped up the match-winning goal? Christy Ring. Wow. So the ni- 1944 is the, the first final I give a shout out. Second one then is the Leinster one. 1996, Wexford versus uh, Offaly, uh, 223 to 215. Liam Griffin was over Wexford at the time. Imagine doing this now with social media and WhatsApp and Twitter and, and, and Instagram. When they, were get, when they were driving to that game on the Wexford-Wicklow border, and he, he, he came up with this idea himself, and it was very much a, a risky move because he would have looked like fools either. But no, he went to his gut and said, listen, this is going to happen. He got them all off the bus, and they walked over the border. And his idea behind that was that when they walked back to Wexford, they walked back with the Bob O'Keefe ball. I thought it was, a, it was, a, it was, it was a, you know, an inspirational thing to do, a risky thing to do for him. Um, but it worked out in the end. And um, another, I remember we played a, a, an under-14 match against the Village Ryan A. League. And uh, they would be, the Village would be a top town team at the time. But... Um, the day before was that Leinster final. I remember Larry Murphy. I still remember this today. He was going around blocking lads with his head. I think someone in the com- someone in the commentary team even said it. Like some lads have put, wouldn't even put their horror where Larry Murphy was in his, his head. And uh, remember that match the following day. We were all going around blocking lads with our heads and our hands. And it was. Uh, I still remember that. You know, so many, so many years later. So uh, Tom Dempsey scored one fight that day. Martin Story five points. Larry Murphy, four pints. Eamon Scallon, four pints. 
Damien Fitzgerald scored a goal from a penalty. So a magical day for Wexford, a magical day for, 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 for a lot of guys. The last one I, I give the shout-out to is 1002 Munster Final. It was 39 years since Watford uh, had won a Munster Championship. Watford, if you can, people wouldn't remember probably back then, but say when I was maybe 9 or 10, Watford were far from a, a powerhouse in Munster at the time. They only came with that kind of Ken McGrath, Ryan Green, you know, a team. And um, so Tony, the score, I don't know what the score was, but Tony Brown scored a goal. I remember he 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 he, he he ran and ran, and the ball just broke, and he pulled the ball to the back of the net. And it was just an inspiration, and they, they never thought, I suppose, they beat Tipperary in the Munster final. Brian Green, we all remember that the photograph, he was down on his knees, looking up into the sky, and just a magical, magical moment. So John Milan, I think, scored four points, and that was a, a great fight. So there are my three shouts for, for this week. Uh, Waterford 2-23, Tipperary 3-12 was the score in that yeah, one. So yeah. they, they blew so, them out in the end. Uh, Colin Bowie yeah, wants to know, is that a... Uh, Play that, eh? Say again? Ken, Ken, Ken McGrath scored seven points from play. That's sensational, like, when you think about it. Like, and then did, did G ruin their year in the semi-final? Is that what happened? 2002, um, they won that. We bet clear in the final. Um, no, yeah. Just I can't remember that, would you believe? 2002. <laughs> My head is gone. That was going to We'd be clear in the final. I think clear beat Waterford in the semi final. We beat Tipperary in the semi in, in, in the Ireland semi final. And it was clear beat Waterford in the other semi final. I'm trying to quickly look it up here, but you're probably right. You you remember better than. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah, Clare won yeah, 16, like, Waterford won 13. Yeah, because a great friend of mine and a uh, guy that brought us our county final intermediate and club all Ireland after years of heartbreak and j- lost Jimmy Coogan. Jimmy scored 1 1 in that semi final against Tipperary. DJ Carey came on for his first game back. Uh, he came back around after the Leinster final. And this was after not playing for the whole winter. And uh, he came back and just the, the, the place lit up. And the, our, our kind of whole mindset, we only won that Leinster final, let's say, be one or two points against Wexford. But we just got going after that. DJ was sensational. Solo threw a ball for midfield. Hand pass it like he, he would only see hand pass it as Jimmy Coogan and Jimmy buried it and that yeah beat Tipperary that day. Tipperary were all Ireland champions, Jared Brian Townsend. But um, no, it's just clear B Watt from the other semi final. Very good. Great stuff. Tommy, thanks a million. Cheers. Enjoy the weekend. Okay. Tommy Walsh giving us his thoughts ahead of the weekend and um two decent games, it's fair to say. We should be looking forward to those. That's your Saturday night and Sunday afternoons looked after. Yeah, it's good week. Good weekend at GA, uh, but to say the least in, in both codes. We'll talk about the football uh, over the rest of the week as well. And if you want your football fix, you'll get it tomorrow night in the Royal Theatre in Castlebar in celebration of Mayo football. It'll be a look at the championship race and obviously this weekend's games and much more as well. It's the Football Pod Live in Castlebar tomorrow. Tickets on sale at otbsports.com forward slash events. You can join Paddy Andrews, James O'Donoghue and Tommy Rooney. We'll go through the papers uh, now. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, I'm a, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not. Yes. No. The uh, front page of the Irish Times is Darrell Shea's column today. Don't worry about the Ulster final. That football won't win Sam. Um, is that, is, it, is there, is there nothing that's... There's no way that like that's just what they did for that game, and they might do something different in Croker. P- possibly, yeah. Like they, they might need to. I, I There's a good chance the way you were doing the draw yesterday in your head. Like, good chance that if they, good chance that all they really have to beat now is Galway. 
Yeah, like, I mean, um, Carol Kane was making the point on Twitter the other day that uh, the GA are upholding this rule that they're not going to allow repeat pairings to occur in the quarterfinals, which means that Derry have beaten all the good teams that are going to be in that draw, basically, with the exception, maybe, of, of they, Mayo. Yeah, they, they really um, they don't want Mayo to win, right? No, well, if Monaghan win, then that means that's another team that Derry can't get. So if Monaghan win, if Tyrone win, and then they subsequently win their round two qualifiers, they would probably be the two best teams in that backdoor draw you'd have to say uh, with the, maybe Donegal in there as well who Derry have also beaten so that would be uh, three of the best teams if they make it to the quarterfinals that Derry actually can't get uh, I know that there's a lot of gymnastics there and a lot of that involves a draw that's yet to be made but because of the fact that Derry have beaten strong teams so far their draw is weighted in their favour as it should be yeah like that's fair enough considering you know Chrissy McCaig's in the papers today talking about this is uh, it's great that we won this thing but it's really unfair yeah we're we're stacked against a bunch of division 1 and 2 teams and nobody else is literally nobody else is and i think probably as well the the yeah the the, the lack of justice around it all just enhances what Derry did at the weekend that they didn't just uh, stumble to a provincial title instead they had to it run was boring the don't make me watch this it's too boring as they win like their first title since 98 this is broken Derry Star hits out at Flawed Championship that's Mark Gallagher's headline on that piece that Chrissy McCaig has been talking about ex-Ireland boss Kerr caught up in Paris chaos I met him in the airport actually he was um, yeah it was all a bit of a shambles um, we must beat this evil Zinchenko's tearful plea over war it's kind of uh, important I think that we do remember that this Ukraine team are representing their country at a time when their country is being invaded and their countrymen are being uh, and women and children are being murdered by Russia uh, Brennan I hope Cody and Shefflin shake on it what do you hope happens with this handshake do you want this beef to like grow yeah or do you want it squashed I want it to grow for the good of the game and just squash the beef big beef is better than small beef no no it's, that's not the GAA way <laughs> who's, whose accent is that when you nobody's, do your GAA voice nobody's, nobody's uh, I've, I've often wondered that it's, it's, a, it's an amalgamation it is uh, it certainly is an amalgamation it's like uh, I'm, I'm just trying to get a geographical pinpoint no, you're on not it allowed. is it like Westmeath no it's nowhere like the, it doesn't the, exist it's a man who's but a dream it's like WBH fisherman <laughs> yes exactly um so no, does that does your hurling man want bigger small beef? Small beef, by the sounds of things. Well, I mean that's what he's saying publicly. Yeah, when you stand in the pub after two pints is like, Jesus, wouldn't it be great if I got bigger? Yeah, <laughs> I feared for my life, Stevens. This is Enda Stevens, who was on the field um, when the Nottingham Forest fans went crazy. Um. Anyway, so he's obviously hoping to represent Ireland. He's out in front of the media. Does that mean he's getting picked? Good chance of getting picked. Mm-hmm. Be, it'd be harsh. I, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. It's uh, it's, it's hard to know. He he uh, he did get picked for ages, and then he didn't get picked for a while when he wasn't fit. And then uh, does he get back into the team now? I'm not sure. Um, so Paris was simply a shambles. Says Kerr. Uh, I did that when I feared for my life. It wasn't really good headline on that. Shaken Stephen was the headline. I can't find it at the moment. It must have been on the Sun. If it wasn't, then I uh, I'm sorry. Um, and so outrage so who's lying now Monsieur Dama 5,000 Liverpool fans testified to Paris Horror and also it, you know the 50,000 tickets 100,000 fake tickets 2,600 is the exact figure that has been uh, released to the AFP so they just lied they just the authorities just lied in the aftermath of that which is not not great and you'd have to hope that Paris is not giving stuff again until they sort that out or until they're like yeah we have learned the lessons from this 
Ukraine deserve it. Ukrainians deserve it. Uh, Tearful Zinchenko vows team will fight for World Cup spot. Um, and Harry Maguire has been talking about bomb threats and being booed. And he says there's a line and it's been crossed. The London Times uh, lead with a cricket story. Broadway only went back fans with thrilling cricket. And um, this is a great story. A Matt Lawton exclusive. UEFA has continued to employ an ethics and disciplinary inspector despite discovering that he had been reprimanded for placing thousands of bets on matches, even backing his own national team to lose. So, UEFA... I mean, they do have they do have big cojones, UEFA. Like, in a way, you just have to marvel at how they're like, we don't care. We don't care about anything. Nothing you say will ever make us care. We are football. We don't care. Mm. Always have. Like, I guess it, it helps when you're the uh, son or daughter of the of FIFA and uh, you're essentially just a little subset of, of their culture. Ah, you're the, you're their upstart. You, you, I mean, they're a spin-off that like somehow grew to be bigger. But you're like uh, the OG I, IBM, and you're looking at Apple over there, going, "Doesn't matter. We were the originals," uh, or maybe you're Microsoft. Shaken Stevens, Enda's Invader Fear. That's the headline of the day. Top of the morning to you. Anyway, Carl Milani is here. Carl, what's going on? Hey lads, how's it going? Very good. Uh, we'll start with news of tennis. Novak Djokovic says he had his chances in last night's French Open quarter-final defeat to Rafa Nadal, the world number one, exiting the tournament after a loss in four sets at Roland Garros. Today, world number seven, Andrei Rublev of Russia, takes on Marin Cilic of Croatia. That's in the men's singles quarter-finals. The other last eight tie in the men's singles sees 8 seed Kasper Ruud face 19-year-old Dane Holger Rune. In the women's draw today, Veronika Kudermetova faces Daria Kazakina, while world number one, Iga Schwan, Tech will take on American Jessica Pagula. In football news, it's set to be an emotional evening at Hampden Park as Ukraine play their first competitive match since the Russian invasion of the country. They take on Scotland in a World Cup qualifier playoff semi-final. Kickoff for that one is at 7.45. Wales await the winner and they're also in action later. They go up against Poland in their first Nations League game from five. The final ISMA takes place at Wembley this evening. The winners of Euro 2020 Italy take on the holders of the Copa America Argentina. Defender George Giorgio Cialini will make his final Italy appearance in that game. While England's Nations League game against Hungary on Sunday, uh, on Saturday rather, won't now be played behind closed doors. The match in Budapest was due to take place without spectators as punishment for racist abuse aimed at players by Hungarian fans during Euro 2020. But a loophole in UEFA's rules means around 30,000 children will be allowed to attend the game free of charge. In golf news this morning, Graham McDowell is among the players in the field for the inaugural Live Golf Innovational Invitational Series in London next week. The former US Open champion will tee it up at the Centurion Club as the Saudi-backed initiative begins. Former world number one Dustin Johnson is also among the participants. Six-time major winner Phil Mickelson is not on the list of entrants initially but six further players are set to be announced. Vicky Wall's move to the AFLW has been confirmed. The Mead star will join North Melbourne later this year and she'll be joined at the club by Cork's Erica O'Shea while the Munster Minor Football Championship final takes place at Porky Rin this evening. Reigning champions Cork take on Kerry Throwin there at half past seven and finally there's racing at the Curra, where the first goes to post at ten past five. All right, Carl, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. That's Carl Manny with us this morning at 8.52. We're uh, going back to the Gaelic Football Championship, and I'm delighted to say the Wexford Football Manager, Shane Roach, is with us. Shane, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning, lads. How are things? You ideally would not be talking to us. You'd be preparing for another match this weekend. Um, how, how, what was your experience of the Talton Cup like? 
Uh, yeah, look, the, the, the game itself against Offaly was, um, I would have found it was a great advertisement for the Tanton Cup. You know, two very evenly matched teams, um, you know, and it went down, right down to the wire. Uh, and you'd see that then all over the weekend with, with London and Sligo as well. Um, you know, Carlo being Tipperary. So it, it is it is a, a great competition. It is, you know, it is going to give out uh, very competitive games. But I suppose for us, you know, leading into it, you have, I suppose the organisation, the North East South, uh, one game, one game preliminary round, then two game preliminary round, New York coming into the South, even though they play in Connacht. So a little bit of the, I suppose, if we knew in advance, we'd be able to plan, like for talk's sake, the day we played, Awfully, we were due to play uh, clear in the challenge because we felt that we were going to there was going to be one preliminary round among sixteen teams. So the chances of us being 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 in that were slim. But then I suppose the week before we were told then there was going to be two preliminary rounds, and both of those games were coming out of the south region, which meant then that we'd gone from slim to sixty six percent chance of playing. So you know that sort of stuff. But um, my experience uh, for the players as well. Um, after last Sunday was very positive you know it's the right time of year to be playing games against the teams that we're competing against and you know I after the game I couldn't have been happier with our performance and uh, you'd be just itching for another game against a team of, of equal standing and I guess maybe this time next year you will get that extra game when they go to a group stage like I mean there's some questions about whether or not that format will work for Sam Maguire but from what you're saying there I presume that that's a positive step for the Talton Cup at least yeah, absolutely. The more, like, uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, gone on record saying, like, trying to play uh, the National League, like, we played Sligo um, early, early February, you know, and it was, it was 12 tenths Sligo in Wexford Park. There was a howling wind. It was, you know, it was very poor showing of probably two teams that had trained hard for that game. But then you see last weekend or, or um, you know, in, in, in some of the Talton Cup games or even in our game, the quality of football, the quality of players, of, uh, you know, playing that uh, in good weather, the more football that's played at this time of year, the better, um, I suppose, for our players and, and for our game. Was it hard to pick yourselves back up after the Dublin defeat? And it, it, it wasn't actually, because in fairness, this, they're the most fantastic bunch uh, of of, of guys, you know, they they really are a connected group. Um, you know, we sat down on Thursday night and we had a right, we had a right, you know, debrief. And uh, like it basically, Ben Brosnan summed it up. Uh, the, the the you know Ben obviously been the elder statesman group. He says, lad, I've played for Wexford since you know maybe two thousand and seven, uh, and we've had fantastic teams and people, you know, laud the players that we had. But I've won Division Three medal to show for, you know, and and like even though Wexford football was a powerhouse and maybe. Um, 08 to 2012 he had one medal and like this was an opportunity for us to go and get a national medal and when that was said it was kind of like right this is the way we're going and, and this is how we're going to go about it and um, I suppose for a, as a manager there was no player had come to me saying they weren't interested they were you know I can just view, view on their behaviours and they were once they came back on Thursday we spoke went out to train I knew we were ready to go for the Talton Cup and we were we were really looking forward to it And that motivation part is a huge factor, I'd suspect. So if you rewind then a couple of weeks before that and knowing that you're drawn against Dublin, knowing that the chances of a medal in that competition as opposed to the Talton Cup were, were much slimmer, does that make that a, di- a more difficult prospect then to, to prepare for? 
Yeah, like you know, I suppose we were we were absolutely delighted after um, after the Offaly win, and you know, I suppose then in one way you want to have you want to have a medal chance, but you also then want to compete against the best. So it's trying to merge that is is probably going to be the difficult part. But for um, you know, we leading into the Dublin game, we felt you know we could give ourselves a right performance and test ourselves against the best, even though like we probably in the back of our minds knew. And that it was going to be very, very difficult to to get a, a result, but um, you know, and look, it, it turned out that way. But uh, yeah, like that's the motivation for us as a group because they're very young. You know, with with the national league, you know, we break it into into three groups: the national league being successful and getting to division division three. That didn't work. Then obviously the Leinster Championship, getting in a win in in the Leinster Championship against Offaly to play against the Dubs. And then uh, the next one would be in the Taltic Cup to win that, but also then to get to Crow Park. So it's like it's learning on the job. So exposing young players to get into Crow Park, to playing in Crow Park, to playing for national titles that will bode well for Wexford football for the future. Uh, what's your view now on, on the merits or otherwise of the Leinster Football Championship? Uh, look, at you're sure it's well, you know, I suppose when one team has won 17, 17 out of 18 years, 17 times out of 18 years, it's probably, it's probably something, you know, that you could continue to do. But whether it's early in the year, it's, 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 it's probably, you know, it's something that's probably, and you see it with Munster as well, it's, it's probably run its course, you know. Because we we Billy Lachlan on yesterday, and he he said he'd had a conversation with the players about the radical proposal. He said more than likely, almost certainly, they will be in the Leinster Football Championship next year. But he at least floated the idea of not taking part from a Longford perspective, and just focusing on the league, which is hugely important to them because it gives them games week in week out against opposition that is of a similar level. But you can pitch yourself at and try and and in their case, they were trying to stay in Division Three. But next year, I presume they'll be looking to to get promoted. And then focus on the Talchin Cup because again, like that, you're saying, you know, Ben Brosnan's point, here's a medal that we could win. Personally feel like something radical like counties deciding, actually, you know what, we're not going to take part in this because we have these other two competitions that are our priority or something. Would it would yeah. perhaps yeah. accelerate change? It, it, that, yeah, definitely. Um uh, you know, and I would have spoke to Billy about that. We would have played a challenge before leading in after the Leinster Championship leading into the Talton Cup and we would have spoke about you know, we'd just come off the back of being beaten by Dublin and them, themselves with, with Westmead. But then the other thing about it is, you know, if you speak to Liam Coleman, who picked up Brian Fenton, or Owen, Owen Porter, who picked up Conor Callan, if you ask them, would you like to, you know, compete against them to learn off them? You know, we probably learned an awful lot from playing against Dublin. Um, now, look, whether whether you do that earlier in the year or at different times or, you know, that's probably something that that's going to have to be looked at. But, you know, I suppose the players still want to get to Crow Park to play the bigger teams um, and test themselves against it as well. So, you know, I don't want to take that opportunity away by, you know, boycotting it or standing away from it because, you know, it is only, uh, I suppose, one third of our overall calendar year and um, you know we might we don't have to put as much emphasis on it, but if you got a nice draw, you could you never know where you could end up. Um, so there's kind of it's it's kind of as I said, it's wanting to have your cake of winning the medal, but wanting to test yourself against the best as well. You know, it does feel that if the provincial championships were the first part of the season, I know we're kind of going over all ground and all proposals here, but that would be a lot better for everybody. I think that would 
I think that would that would give you guys a, a more realistic opportunity of of taking out a big fish in that championship if it was the first competition of the season. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You know, we and, and even for then what we showcased. So, like we have, we talk about being performance based, but a performance then against Sligo, um, you know, the Tipperary game was cancelled. There was a waterlogged pitch. There was high winds that day. So, like any sort of training that we would have prepared for that game would have went out the window, obviously because of the conditions. Where last week against Offaly, um, or the challenge games we had against Kildare, Longford. On on hard ground and on nice pitches, you could you could try out what you've been training, and you could really expose the players to high levels um, of of performance. Right, you know, and that's my that's my take on it. That we and our body type, like we, are, I was looking at it this morning. There, we've twenty guys that are twenty five and under, so they're only starting to develop and get you know fitter and stronger. And this time of year, looking out here now in Wexford, and the sun's spitting the spitting the stones. This time of year, playing playing football would be a great advertisement to uh, for our guys, and but also for the kids of Wexford uh, to 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 be seen. You know, lads like Martin O'Connor, Owen Porter, Liam Coleman, uh, Paul Hughes on this time of the year. But unfortunately, now you know we're, we're wrapped up and and we're gone. Yeah, and I think next year there's a guarantee of like two extra games for the round robin as well. It's not like it's going to be massively. Trans- it's not like you're going to be playing football to the middle of July. Yeah. No, no, that, that, like that's the thing. Like it's going to be like it is so condensed. And like when I, you know, I would always love this time of the year around the seventeenth of May, the preliminary round in Ulster, leading all the way through the summer months. Every Sunday, either having uh, Munster hurling and uh, you know Leinster football, Ulster football, but then the qualifiers, and you know, you can go to games, get the games. But now it just seems to be, um, you know, I think Colm O'Rourke said at the weekend we played Dublin there was three games and then the weekend after it I think there could have been 16 or, or maybe something along those lines it was just seemed to be we're going to run off these games and away we go like we would have felt I suppose uh, as well as Carlo and Loud it, when you're playing uh, you know a Division 1 and 2 team and you're given six days even though the following week you know there's only going to be three games on like why couldn't we you know we were going to play Dublin we are going to compete against them but you know, we picked up a few uh, few knocks and bruises against Offaly and some of the guys like Martin O'Connor, uh, our captain, never trained even into the double game. But then I, I'm saying, Martin, you're picking up Kieran Kilkenny. So it was probably, it was just kind of right. We'll give these lower tier teams, they get the preliminary round and we'll run them off straight away because they probably evidently know who's going to be the winners. It kind of brings us all back to the circular arguments of the provincial championships don't really work. They're not fit for purpose. They're not helping counties like you to develop and they're not helping the the All-Ireland potential winners to develop either. It's just this weird, anachronistic hangover from history that we had a chance to do something about and decided, no, 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 we're, we're happy with yeah, where it is. I look, you know, like I look at all the arguments and, I, you know, I, I hope I listen to both sides and not just my own opinion, but like it's, it's evident like that, that the Anglo uh, Celtic Cup or Anglo Celtic Cup in the, in Ulster is is the big one. It's the one that you know that the Ulster teams don't want to whether to split or to, to give up their provincial medals because like that is up there. Uh, and I know a good few guys up up the north that to win an Ulster Championship medal is is, is golden. You know, and and that's the, that's the big sway on, on on probably any argument with with uh, with talking about the provincials. It's funny, Christy McCaig's in the papers today saying it's great that we won this, but the system is still broken where we've played a bunch of Division 1 teams and uh, 
nobody else has played Division 1 teams who might be an, in an All-Ireland semi-final by the time the semi-final comes around by, by the time the yeah. quarter-final rolls around Kerry are at a quarter-final stage Dublin are at a quarter-final stage and they haven't beaten Division 1 and Division 2 teams um, maybe Dublin have beaten Kildare and that's about it um, I suppose me they're technically Division 2 as well just about Dublin are Division 2 as well it's not fair it's true it's true it's true so anyway look um, the one last thing is um, your players all now go back to the clubs yeah. How do you make sure that you, as a group, maintain the progress that you've made? Is, is the split season going to work, or what are the what are the challenges facing you as an county manager now that the split season has kicked in? Well, like we also have then a split season in Wexford, so um, our guys go back now and they probably play ten weeks of hurling, um, and then the next time they'll probably get football in their hand probably at the end of August, start of September, and obviously that's dependent on uh, Dara and, and the Wexford hurlers. You know how far they go. But we we split our club season as well, and up come what comes first now is is going to be the 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 hurling championship um, for a block, and then the football championship for a block. So, um, you know what I found difficult last year was, and that was the first year we kind of we ran it that way. Was you know players coming back that have been to a county football final, and you know and they're apt, they've played probably sixteen weeks of, of club action, which was eight eight to nine weeks of of, of hurling and then eight eight to nine weeks of football as well so like how long do you give them for a break so your pre-season is very limited your ability to do solid S&C work in you know what you call your off-season is very limited and then obviously rest and recovery because when they come back in in November December you know our most important game is probably the 28th of January in the first round of the National League like we would have probably put all our eggs in our in, in that basket for Sligo. You know, we've been away the weekend before on an overnight um, to Johnstown to play an away game to prep for the first round of the National League to get off to a to a to a to a winner to promote to, to improve our standing in, in the National League standing. And that didn't work out. So, you know, uh, I often read Jim McGuinness said like the best year Donegal had they had a sixteen week training or preseason, but um, we, my lads will be doing hurling for the next eight to ten weeks. Football then for the for the same, and then they'll come back in in whatever shape you know, which is is probably going to be very difficult on them as well. Yeah, okay, that's uh, that is a tricky balance to get right. But we wish you the very best of luck with it, Shane. Thanks, William, for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. Anytime. Shane Roach, there, the manager of the Wexford Footballers, talking to us about uh, life in the Talchin Cup. They're out of it, obviously, after defeat to Offaly. Seven minutes past nine this morning. Here, if you want to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Here's what's coming up on OTB Sports Radio this afternoon. At one o'clock, OTB Gold is Jerry Eisenberg talking about Muhammad Ali. Koi Gig is Niamh Fahi. Our retro panel is the importance of Club GAA. And at six o'clock, it's OTB Gold. Catherine Switzer running the Boston Marathon, having to pretend to be a man because uh, that was the rules back in the day. Um, But what a hero she is. Follow us on all our social channels. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you haven't already, you're missing out because it means you don't get a notification whenever we go live. And... um, you know, most of the people who watch us are actually subscribed to us. So, you know, you could always join the herd. Uh, you can download the OTV Sports app and get all our stuff for free. After the break, we're going to be joined by Derek McNamara, rugby analyst, uh, founder of Sports Asset Management, to break down the stats on why Leinster lost the Champions Cup final to La Rochelle. OTB AM. Right, it is nearly 10 minutes past nine this Wednesday morning. Derek McNamara is with us. Um, a pointy-headed rugby boffin, is that your official title? <laughs> exactly, that's me. The stats man. Um, <laughs> What do you do? Tell us. What do we do? Yeah. Yeah. God, we basically, I, I break down the game so that I can identify if teams are getting better or worse based on their performance. How know? do you do that? Because it's a, it's a specific thing. Yeah. You kind of... 
Well, when we, you know, the simplest way of identifying is, you know, the game is a way of measuring performance. You know, everything is there on the pitch for you to to view or see. So, we break the game down into different parts, different sections, and then we we the most important thing is the grades. So we give each individual player a score based on their, you know. The, whether or not the player pumped the legs, whether the player lift the line out and hit the straps, the quality of the performance. So by aggregating those scores, we're then able to show if a player's getting better or a team's getting better or worse so that we can break down the game into kind of easy, understandable way for coaches or you know players or analysts or whoever it is so that they can identify if a team's getting better or worse. Or simply, we break it down to... Uh, did a team win or lose based on player performance? Was it due to coaches or was it due to skills? So, which is a kind of combination of both. Okay, and, and, and who uses your information? What? what? God, everybody. Yeah. So we, they, you know, uh, gaming companies, you know, um, schools, clubs, professional teams, international teams, you know. So, taking all that information and and you know, uh, editing it or, or manipulating it in a way that coaches can understand it they can then you know measure their own performance as a coach or players can review that information and watch their videos and learn while they're away from the pitch which is something brand new you know it's not it's not something that that currently exists so that's that's our idea is to improve the game and improve the player performance you know and rugby is still a reasonably new professional sport so we're going to try and drive that innovation and and you know player performance quality over the next couple of years it's giving coaches easily digestible information about mm. stuff that's meaningful yeah 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 so like um, there's just way too much going on in the game you know rugby is a very simple sport you know when you break it down there's once the game gets going you've only got carrying passing uh, rucking and tackling that happen in the game so um, when you break it down it's quite a simple sport but in reality there's way too much happening in the game during the game so what we do is we watch the game multiple times, we break it down and we, we, we give that information back to coaches so that they can drill in as far as they want into the information and watch the video and see why a player got a poor poor grade at the breakdown. Or they can drill in and, and take a look and say, oh, well, this player is playing in this league. I need this type of player. Um, we can go get that player for fastly less money than the guys over in... New Zealand or Australia that have got a big name to their, 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 their themselves but so buy on fact as opposed to reputation yeah yes yeah. buy, buying on fact as opposed to reputation yeah yeah it's just something that, that you know I, I suppose everybody's been out there trying to do this but you know I, I started doing this as a hobby as a you know I was obsessed with wanting to know if why my team won or lost a game was it due to, to was it due to me as a coach? Was it due to the players or was it due to skills? So that's kind of been the essence of what I've been trying to do. And I've slowly made my way up through the schools, clubs, now helping out some of the top coaches in the world and top teams in the world. So it's it's fun. Yeah, it's funny, Ron Regard did drop your name on the show a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and so very interested to hear what your analysis is of the final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, very interesting game. I, I, I'd analysed the two teams prior to the game far more than any other teams uh, before so it w- it's definitely a good uh, use case alright but um, yeah w- just watching the game even even first off I was I was very surprised at the way in which Lancer were playing you know it was, it was um, like if you anybody who's watched a lot of French rugby you'd know that teams especially when they play at home they'll demand the, 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 the ball and they'll c- control the ball and they'll play territory rather than you know, going for points. Uh, so I was surprised that, you know, the lack of um, 
the lack of um, con- uh, contesting Le- Leinster or La Rochelle's ball. So that was the first thing. So I have a little stat up here. Um, yeah, so basically of the... So explain this. This is yeah. the num- number of breakdowns that are contested and uncontested for both teams. This yes. Is, um, so Leinster had 64 breakdowns. Yeah. Contested 44, uncontested 20. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so Lara Shell contested sixty four percent or sixty nine percent of all of uh, Leinster's balls. So, basically, that that is the fundamental start of our core reason why things began to break down for Leinster. That that as well as the defensive line that came up and cut off the the, the pod that was in front of the Johnny Sexton. But this is this is how the there was so much pressure put on Leinster's ball, even though they only had thirty four thirty four percent of the ball. By putting on so much pressure on Leinster, that affected their their rooking. So there was more players in the rook, which takes away from players in the back line. Which you know, then all of a sudden you've got players that are on the back foot. The passing then is affected by that, which means that the, the delivery of the ball to the likes of Sexton and the guys outside gets worse. And you so know, people I mean, might that, notice this: the passing goes a little bit. It's a little bit behind. Why is the passing a little bit behind? It's not because they've suddenly become bad passers. It's because, yeah, it's a knock-on from everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything has a reaction, even equal and opposite reaction. You know, so um, pressure is huge in rugby. You know, Try, understanding a way of, of continuously putting teams under pressure over an extended period of time. It, it it has effects, but also it's the Heineken final. <laughs> These players are under severe pressure as it is, you know. So um, any any time, and like again, we we can look at all the stats and the data and look at it. Like Leinster only lost with the last play of the game, so it's but it's it's understanding how these things break down, um, and you know Leinster weren't able to play the game that they wanted to play. Like you know, Leinster like to hold the ball, and Larishel's core idea was hold on to the ball and keep them out of your twenty two. Which is a very hard thing to do, especially when you got the likes of Leinster players. But that's that's what they did, you know. They, so the fact that if we look at uh, Lara Shell's analysis, you know, they had 123 uh, breakdowns, nearly twice the amount of breakdowns as Leinster did. But um, Leinster only contested 26 percent of these. So that, as well as Leinster or Lara Shell putting the ball in the corners rather than going for points meant that Larishel could control the, the, the ball but could control territory as well at the same time. So that as well as Leinster being under compression or, or a lot of pressure meant that they were kind of on the back foot and they weren't able to make those connections that were so easy in the uh, Toulouse game. That's interesting because I, I, I don't know, is, is that a trend that you we would have seen over Leinster in the past where they, they tend not to contest breakdowns generally? Is that their style ordinarily? Um no, so it depends on the personnel that are on the pitch, right? You know, you have certain players that would be looking to do this and certain players that are good at it and certain players that, like Larry Shell or Brunt at it, you know, they'd be one of the top teams in Leinster. But any of the data that we've looked at for Larry Shell on, on top 14, it's usually around 45 to 55% okay, of so the time. this is a significant so change, a significant shift in the final. It's two very distinct uh, teams in trying to implement two distinct game plans. One, led like Larry Shell helped uh, was helped by uh, by Lancer. Lancer the Lancer team probably didn't have the personnel there to to, to get that uh, to, to, to disrupt you know so uh, but yeah 20, 26% contested is, is definitely a game plan or has been you know and you can see it in the game if you look back at it you know you'll see 
the, the, the answer lads are, are getting away from the, the breakdown as soon as the, it sets, you know, to yeah. try and make sure that they're there for the, the when the, where the attack is coming from. Okay. One of the, the common, I guess, conversations over the, the last little while was uh, about the um, Leinster, you know, being Ireland and uh, a game plan to stop Leinster is a game yeah. plan to stop Ireland. Have you seen those statistics kind of being co- comparable in some way to the statistics that tend to exist in a game plan that beats Ireland as well or is this very much specific to just what happened last Saturday? you got two distinct different types of coaches you know Leinster have got the guys 80% of the time the Irish guys only got them 20 so it's it's logical for the, the, the Irish team to follow what's happening with the leading team that has the most amount of players so that's it's it's more Lance, or Ireland copying Leinster rather than Leinster copying Ireland so but I think the the overriding factor is, is that the, the Leinster team weren't able to go to plan B. They, they went to plan B in the Leicester game. So Ronan mentioned the Leicester game and the, the Connacht game, I think it was. In the Leicester game, they were able to get ahead with a couple of points at the start and they were able to then stay ahead. In Leicester, were too riled up. They made too many mistakes, you know. So the blueprint was there, you know. And I think we've got another stat as well showing just about trends and, you know, Leinster's trends. So... And the blue line just shows the, this is basically showing the quality, the grades of the team from the first half through to the second half. And the blue line kind of represents the, how kind of um, Leinster's quality kind of dropped off in the second half. And that's a trend. You know, this is over in multiple games. You can see that the quality of the team drops, which you, you would you'd expect to a certain extent with players getting tired, but... You, you know, you can you expect the can you can you um, control for the fact that Leinster the game was over against Leicester? Like, yeah, but it, it a trend is a trend. It's you know these are reoccurring instances in the game. So the, when when you're looking at an opposition, you're always looking for some some element of a team that that you know falls apart or or that has weaknesses. And this is this is big weakness. It's it's reoccurring. And then once we once you you throw back the. Uh, the second line is the blue line, or the red line. That's the actual final. And you can see the trend continues again in the in the final, where you know. But again, like they, if you if you look at Lancer, they had Callagher, Furlong, Lowe, and uh, Frawley, who were all had knocks or were somewhat injured going into the game. So trying to expect your 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 bench to come along and actually you know improve your quality of your team at that at, in the second half is is very very difficult. So, so what what is the exact data here, and how how are you how are you getting that? So we grade each individual player. So we give a grade one to five. Okay. So a pass, for instance, if a pass goes to ground, it gets a two. A three is a pass that's high or low. Four is a very good pass, but has something slightly wrong with it. And a five is a perfectly weighted, perfectly timed pass. When we aggregate all those scores, we we split the first half into three uh, equal. Um, Equal uh, times, yeah, based on so 15 minutes of actual time in the first half, 15 minutes in the second half, so that's five, five minutes of three sections. I'm kind of a bit too deep here. <laughs> but basically, they're each equal amount of time, and we aggregate those scores. So in the, the there, there's around 1,000 activities in the second half. So there's probably 300 in the first, 300 in the second, and when we average out those scores, we get a very, very accurate representation of the quality of the team over that, nice. over that 80 minutes. So it's it's very very accurate. It's it means something. It's it shows that the the team is losing concentration, or the team has is missing a leader, or that they're, they're taking too many of their leaders off. It could mean loads and loads of different things. But unless you actually have this data, you, you'd never know. Yeah, it's really so, interesting. So o- O'Gara 
is your sense that he obviously would have had this data as well or could he judge this from the eye test from the, the Leicester and, and Connacht games yeah of course like the, the the top coaches out there and like even coaches that are in school they, that have got their way to top level they're all really good coaches they've all got that sense you know mm. and especially you know professional sports all the way up those these coaches that have got that sense of you know oh, I got this idea but I don't know how to do anything about it that's that's where that's me <laughs> so that's that's where we created a software develop, you know system to allow coaches to work off those hunches that they've had and have data to go and go to a player and say you know you're not working hard enough in the in the second half or you need to work on your rooking and your quality or there's an opportunity for us to be better in the second half even if like in, in yeah because they were as you say they're so close so you, you, you end up I'm, and I'm sure they'll do a lot of soul searching over the off season mm. to try and it's it's basically they're in a similar situation to uh, New Zealand after New Zealand kept blowing World Cups where they were like this seems to be the best team why do they keep losing and uh, Leinster need one of those massive uh, period of self reflection and analysis to get to a point where they stop losing these games yeah but a lot of these teams they they're at the top for so long you know like Leinster are. are Brilliant, you know, like they're they're amazing. They've got so many amazing indigenous players. It's they're they just prep the prep for the game wasn't, you know, <laughs> if you'd watch any amount of of top fourteen rugby, you know, you, you'd, so you'd La Rochelle did exactly what you expected them to do, did they? Oh yeah, like yeah, totally. Like they hold on to the ball, um, control the ball, control the locate. You know, if you're playing against any, it doesn't matter if it's a school cl- team or a club team or international professional team. If you're playing against a superior team, what would be considered superior team, keep tr- you do whatever you can to keep them out of your twenty-two, because teams get, you know, the, the good teams once they get into twenty-two, everything becomes tighter, everything becomes more, con- you know, because everybody in training, that's what you do in training. You, you train teams to get better in the in the twenty-two. So. That's what La Rochelle did, and Leinster, unfortunately, now they came up, you know, one once last score of the game. But there, there needs to be more done by teams to be able to implement different strategies in games. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help teams to, you know, like in American football, for instance, you obviously you've got a mic that's going directly up to the booth. That you can't implement that. You know, it's just not the way. But there are different things that you can do to to get what you want done or change different game plans because things may not work or you know things well, you give the apart. players ideally yeah. over a period of time the information that uh, you know if the game is going this way mm. then we need to imp- in, um, activate different plans yeah 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 yeah. You, you don't really necessarily need to get all the players to know it's usually just one you know what I mean there's just one player you need to get the word on and they help everybody else understand you know they're, they're, it's very subtle it doesn't need to be massive uh Implementations of different game plans. The game plan could be very, something as simple as, okay, we're going to attack, we're going to stop leaving them get the ball, we're going to get the ball, and we're going to maintain control of the ball. doesn't matter where in the pitch it's going to happen. You know? um, as an Ireland rugby fan, should we be concerned that Leinster were closed down like that at the weekend? God, where do I start with this? Uh, <laughs> um, I'd be concerned every four years. <laughs> there is uh, there's not a huge amount of um, historical reasoning for us not to be worried but I'm here I can help them um, you know if that's if that's something they want to do and the way I would try and try and sh- like there's enough time small incremental steps we don't you know it's not about looking and, and taking shortcuts and getting to where you want to get to it's 
It's about, okay, this is something that went wrong. Can we measure it? Can we identify it? And can we replicate that, those, those, those issues that came up? Can I ask you a little bit about uh, how open the sport is to taking on the information that you're giving them? Because hmm. uh, we have seen a data revolution in many sports, but we've yeah. also seen a, a similar, a, a simultaneous parallel. No, no, no. I, no what, what can these people teach me with their computers and their spreadsheets? What's really yeah. like? Well, it's the same in any industry, right? It's the same in anything that happens. When anytime there's something new comes along, people are going to be pretty quick to poo-poo it or sport definitely divides down with the like the ones who are desperate yeah. for all the information and the other ones who are like I see this as a threat yeah. but if you look at if you look at the NFL so I worked in PFF for, for a while and you know this great experience you know they, they, they're working directly with the, the you know people in the back you know back office or front all, office all 32 NFL teams yeah yeah, yeah hundreds of, hundreds of uh, teams in, in college and they, they deal directly with the, the top guys in each of the clubs or each of the, the franchises but they also deal with the guys lower down the head coach and the, the other coaches so when you're going into and they, they've shown the blueprint so they deal with the broadcasters they deal with the you know the gaming companies so like EA Sports for instance so there, there, there is a whole wide range of, of ways in which PFF or helping organizations around sport. So just because it's the head coach isn't into analysis or it doesn't doesn't believe in in data, you know, because he uses his hunch and he's got to that point, that's totally fine. But that doesn't mean that the guys that are coming up that are used to using phones and rely on technology to be able to tell what they do, it's 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 a slow, steady, you know, you can't you can't go in knocking on these doors and kicking doors down. You gotta Trust, build trust with these coaches and these these people in, in these in individuals. But the the investment in analytics and sport, especially in rugby, is only going to get more higher. And you know we're we're here to try and and, and answer those questions and, and and help teams. You know fundamentally is what we're trying to do is help teams. And it feels like there's a culture of video analysis. It's just about maybe making sure that um, that's all consistent from competition to competition age group to age group and from player to player and mm. that's what the opportunity it seems to me from yeah well we're, we're going to be able to analyze you know schools rugby you know because we have different levels we can think it's eight different levels of, of performance and a- analytics all including grading you know so we're looking to help schools because I, I came from uh, helping you know Belvedere College uh, with Phil Rahiko years ago and that's that's where I started um, and you know, it's the, the guys at the very top still want that data, still don't want that information. So. One last question for you. The, the, the debate about Sexton and whether or not, you know, the, the tail off in the second half, maybe if he'd been on the field of play, things might have changed. He might have spotted something. He might have done something different. Um, what would the the analysis and the, the, the data show about um, the 10 when it comes to Leinster and Ireland, do you think? Well, everything, like, everything revolves around Sexton and semi-final. So, Getting so the the pod that goes in front of Sexton was, is there to try and protect him, but yeah, as soon as that breaks down, he's just like any other ten in reality. You know, like he he is an amazing passer, amazing kicker, amazing decision maker. But he, he you know he, he he did struggle on Saturday um, a lot. So getting getting another ten in there, it, it's hard. Like there's 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 a lot of tens out there that could fill in for Ireland and be. But I think in reality, we're all expecting or wanting or willing the next 10 to come true to be an Ogara or a Sexton. And they're generational players. So he he needs to probably wrap himself in cotton wool for a couple more months. If we want him to play in the World Cup, then we just play him very rarely. 
Um, he's amazing, amazing talent. Like the, if I had it here, I'd be able to show you the the, the analysis from the the semi final and quarter final. And he was the top graded player. You know, he's top player in the, in the competition. And that's because he does make the right decisions. His passing is accurate. He comes onto the ball when he's supposed to. So the drop off is significant from him to the yeah, other teams. yeah. But but it, what what we can do is we can do a comparison between Sexton and and whoever is. And we can say, okay, well, th- this player needs to slightly improve in passing or carrying or decision making, and we can we can try and help help that player or a bunch of players to go. Okay, well, you need to work on your passing, or you need you're in this situation, you need to pass the ball or skip the ball, whatever it is. We can we can help them mirror that player because it's it's not it's not necessarily about the the player that fits into the role. It's the it's the position. It's it's the position on the team and their and what you want them the, to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, it's measuring performance based on what, what they're doing. So, All right. Derek, good stuff. Yeah, cheers, guys. Best of luck with it. Thanks a million. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Tomorrow, Ashley O'Reilly co-host Owen gets to uh, find himself in Barcelona, it says here. Is that what you're doing? That's a very strange sentence, but... What are you, what are you doing? I'm going to a music festival. All tomorrow's... Part. What, which one is it? Primavera. Primavera. Very good. Is this your first Primavera? No, first since COVID. Right. Not first. Are you meeting stop. Graham? No, I don't know, actually. Graham Hunter, if you're out there, hit me up. We'll also be joined <laughs> Andy Mitten, uh, who obviously uh, lives close to Barcelona. Yeah, uh, hit me up as well, Andy. Man United summer, he- summer ahead with their new manager. And ex-tennis pro Jenny Claffey joins us to talk about the women's draw at the French Open. Much more as well besides... OTB AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.